Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a show about technology and contemplating the finer details and their practical application. By exploring the real-world trade-offs, we dive into how great ideas can be transformed into products and services that impact our lives. This episode is brought to you by ManyTrix, makers of helpful apps for the Mac. Visit manytricks.com slash pragmatic for more information about their amazingly useful apps. We'll talk more about them during the show. Pragmatic is supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, you can by supporting our sponsor or by becoming a premium supporter. Premium support is available via Patreon and through the Apple Podcasts channel subscription. Premium supporters have access to early release, high-quality, ad-free episodes, as well as bonus material from all of our shows not available anywhere else. We're edging closer to our monthly goal to go advertising-free across the network. We're nearly there, but we can only do that with your help. Pragmatic is also a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show and with the right podcast player, you can also stream Satoshis and boost with a message as you listen. Just visit engineer.network slash pragmatic to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. Pragmatic Electric has recently launched as a video edition of this podcast. You can watch that in Podfriend, Curiocaster, the Apple Podcasts app, Downcast, or if you're into YouTube, it's there too make sure you check it out today. Uh, I'm your host, John Chigi, and today I'm joined once again by my good friend, Vic Hudson. How you doing, Vic? I am good, John. How are you, man? I am awesome. I've been uh, been looking forward to talking about this one for a little while. I had a trip to a wind farm. <laughs> That's cool. Hey, first up, let me yeah. say, congratulations yes. on the video show. I like it. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed watching it. Oh, I look forward to more of them. I think you, I think you, you got a good personality for it, and I like watching you on there. And uh, also, congratulations, you are the first person that ever actually made me question Marco's decision not to support video podcasts in Overcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I was really annoyed by that because I'm like, yeah, just listening over. Oh, no, you can't. No. Nope. Never mind. No. Can't watch it. Oh, okay. So I was madly testing all these different apps to see what would work. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think have, basically anything but Overcast. <laughs> No, 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 it's not. No, 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 it's not quite that good. Oh. Like, um, Downcast, I think, supported video podcasts back in the day. Oh, Downcast has been supporting it forever, yeah. as far as I know, as long as I can remember, anyhow. Uh, so yeah, Downcast works really well. Uh, the Apple Podcasts app, uh, also it plays just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, Curiocaster is a uh, is a web based one, and it plays it really well. Podfriends web interface uh, plays it perfectly well too, mm-hmm. um, and I think on Android as well. But there's an issue on the iOS Podfriend um, that the developers working on something to do with some uh, can some some way that he instantiates the uh, the uh, the video um, player within mm-hmm. the application on iOS. But anyway not going into the details. But the truth is the vast majority of people will be watching it on uh, on YouTube right? anyway. So it's posted on all of them, but um, you know, obviously if you subscribe in Downcast yeah, and you, you want to watch it in Downcast or Apple Podcasts or what have you, you don't have to deal with all the advertising that YouTube shoves over the top. Even though I say don't advertise on my stuff, they'll still do it because they're YouTube. Um, you know, because I've yeah right because I flagged a bunch of my content as no this is not Google's well known for respecting other people's decisions about their content. Well, they are. <laughs> yes, they are, aren't they? Uh-huh. Yes, sarcasm noted. I think the um, only people that respect it more are Facebook. <laughs> oh yes, that's true. Yes, they're very respectful of, of 
Hmm, moving right along. Okay. <laughs> um, so getting a little bit ahead of that, but um, but I do want to, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute uh, as to what what that project is. So Pragmatic Electric, what it is, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I did want to actually kick off before we get stuck into that and wind farming, uh, talking a little bit about what's happened on the, since we last spoke on Pragmatic. Uh, so in episode 103, we talked about um, my retro Mac Pro, the 2013 trash can. And yep. I said to you at the time, I threatened, I said, you know what I'm going to do? Mm-hmm. I'm going to upgrade this thing because I can do that. You know, mm-hmm. it's not one of those things. It doesn't have soldered on uh, components on me. Okay, it does, but it doesn't. <laughs> you can you can upgrade the RAM and then the solid state drive and the CPU if you really game. So um, anyway, so since then, I've upgraded both the solid state drive. Right. Uh, I've gone from the 256 gig that it came with, mm-hmm. uh, the Apple original, and I've gone to um, an M.2 NVMe um, with an adapter board to adapt it to the Apple specific standard mm-hmm. um, to fit in the Mac Pro, and I now have a two terabyte drive, and that thing is a screamer. It is so much quicker Sweet. than the original one. Oh, it's awesome! And I've got space to burn. He says as he's half filled it. Anyway, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> you get space, you'll find crap to put in it. That is very true. So I, it had space to burn. Now I'm halfway through that space. I'm feeling a little bit less mm-hmm. um, giddy about it, but that's all right. Uh, and the one I did most recently was upgrade the RAM. And yeah. I got sucked in by one of those Boxing Day deals. And when I, say, when I say Boxing Day, it was more like Boxing Week and a half. Yeah. Which it's like I, Black just, Friday's a whole week anymore. Cyber Monday's a whole week anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know, right? It's like, what the hell? And they're giving me hot cross buns a week after Christmas. And mm-hmm. it's like, when is Easter? Come on now. Stop it, people. Stop. Hey, don't give, don't give them ideas. There's going to be an Easter week sale now. Oh, damn it. You're right. There will be. But I mean, I actually did seriously get like, I was like 15% off. And when you're spending 400 bucks on That's RAM, a non-trivial that, amount of money. Yeah, it's worth having in my pocket rather than this. I'm like, yeah, I, either you can look at it like that or you can say I got sucked in by marketing. I don't care. I got slightly cheaper RAM fine mm-hmm. um but it's this iwc stuff i've got 64 gig and um it, it can take 128 but when you dig into the detail if you actually go to 128 that's 32 gig sticks mm-hmm. and in order for the back-end bus to handle that data throughput in the dressing space mm-hmm. for 128 for 32 gig um uh, uh dims it slows down the bus to handle the volume doesn't it yes it does that's, that's what exactly what it does yeah yeah so you can do it, but... The trade-off may not be worth it. No, and for my case, it certainly wasn't. Yeah. So I looked at, you know, I had 16 gig, and I'm like, you know I think what? it depends on your use case, What which, which is the higher mm. priority for you. You want fast memory, or do you need bulk memory? Well, not being needy, I wanted both, but um, in the end... <laughs> <laughs> I understand you know. that, as you do. I meant the, the, the general person, you know. That's, that's, the, know that's the trade-off mean. to consider. Yeah. Do I need more, no, or do I need fast? Yes. And of course, I wanted both, but yes, I saw. So in, in the end, I chose the speed at the max amount of RAM I could get without sacrificing speed. So I went with sixty-four gig. That's a nice, healthy amount of RAM. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. It's a thing of beauty. I I, I tweeted about it, and Ronnie, uh, our mutual friend Ronnie Lutz, came back and sort of like said he had forty gig on his iMac, and it is a beautiful thing. So I've yeah. got to admit, it is a beautiful thing. Yeah. So I mean, I I just I haven't hit the wall. Mm-hmm. I haven't needed swap. I haven't needed compressed RAM. It's just been. And everything is just like if you have one window open, it's just as snappy. If you have fifty windows open, because it's all just in in RAM and it's just like so fast, it's mm-hmm. great. 
So anyway, love it. Even the windows of Syracuse County couldn't make it sweat. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, yes. And when you see the biggest process is because um, I, I use the Brave browser these days um, because I just like the way I could just turn off all of this other gunk and, and uh, scripts and crap using it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a bit, sometimes it breaks stuff, but generally it's better than it is not. Anyway, so let's say I've got like 20 or 30 tabs open on this one window and it's taken up something like 8 gig of RAM. Yeah. I'm like, yep, it's not a problem. It's not even breaking a sweat. It's like getting warm. I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So I've got virtual machines. I've now got a, virt- a Parallels virtual machine for Windows for um, work purposes running constantly. It's just sitting there waiting to be used because I can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've got something like five um, Alpine Linux virtual machines running in VirtualBox, running all sorts of different things from my Pleroma instance to my CrossPoster to my GoHugo builder, um, GitT repository, just you name it. I've got all these VMs just running constantly in the background. So Yeah. And I can do it because I've got all that RAM now. So mm-hmm. it's fantastic. Anyway. So, yeah, that was just a little bit of an update on that. I thought um, I thought you might find that interesting. And um, I also heard a rumor about you and your um, computer. Apparently, you may have got yourself a new laptop. You want to tell me a bit about what you got? I did. But before we do, I want to touch on mm. a couple of these links you've got here in the notes. I was looking at your blog mm. post about this upgrading process. And I don't want you to take this the wrong way because I really enjoyed what you wrote and what you said about it. But I just got to say, uh-huh. the coolest thing in this is the pictures of the MacBook, of not the MacBook, but the, the Mac Pro taken apart. Do you remember that scene in Empire Strikes Back that we were all floored by of Darth Vader's helmet off? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this, <laughs> that's the first thing that come to mind is just say whatever you want about this machine. And I'm not going to lie, I still question you going all in on a machine this old, mm. but... Say whatever you want about this machine. It is honestly a thing of beauty to look at that thing with the case off and just to, to admire the way it's all put together and stuff. It, it, it really is a truly beautiful piece of engineering. It's it, just a shame that they designed themselves into a thermal corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, damn. Yeah, you're right. It is gorgeous. It, it really is. It, it's quite impressive. I just... They had issues with it, and it, it didn't survive the cut, so to speak. But, man, it, it really was a thing to marvel at at the time. And it still is. Don't don't get me wrong, but it just it's 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 nice. Well, the closing point. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree with that wholeheartedly. But I mean, it's not the reason I got it. Although I will admit, sometimes when I, I take the cover off to blow the dust out of it, sometimes it's more of an excuse just to take the cover off of it and look at it. Uh huh. Um, maybe. But I'll just. Oh, there's a bit of dust there. I'll just blow that Are out. Are you blowing the dust out daily, Chigi? I am not doing that just yet, but that's a slippery slope. I'm, I've I've got it down to once a month. I don't think any more okay. frequently than that is a bad. That would be a sign of a problem. Hmm. Anyway, hmm. but it'd be the cleanest Mac Pro ever. Next thing you know, you get a whole kitchen full of cast iron. Things happen. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> For the record, the uh, outer case slope. of this thing is uh, is not made out of cast iron. The that's outer case, I'm pretty sure, is not made. Terribly out. disappointing. <laughs> I know, I can't season this thing. I'm sorry. Anyhow, never mind. Uh, but I mean, the, the reason I got this, and just to close out on the point, is that it meets my needs simply because I needed mm-hmm. uh, a Mac desktop that was currently supported and uh, that could drive three 4K displays uh, at 60 hertz. And admittedly, you know, that 30 hertz display, um, I'd had to do a bit of a kernel tweak on that using Switch Res X, but it does also display at 60 and it does work. That's cool. So honestly... Um, it, it does everything I need. And I specifically got 
um, the model that had the best reliability, which mm-hmm. is the D300. Right. It's best I could tell anyhow. So the only thing that's left to upgrade now in this thing is the CPU, and then I've maxed it out as much as I can. And I don't think I'll be doing the CPU anytime soon because I don't know if you've seen any videos about how to replace the CPU I in have Mac not. Pro 2013. I would imagine that's pretty don't. intense. Look, <laughs> it's it's bad. It's yeah. really bad. So everything is all perfectly beautiful and pretty and it's got nice screws and nice little ribbon cables. But, oh, my God, you disassemble pretty much the whole bloody thing just to get to this. Yeah. Um, it's beautifully engineered, but it is not user replaceable. Right. Like the solid state drive, the RAM, absolutely. But the CPU, noob. Yeah. Don't, I mean, I could do it, yes. Mm-hmm. But I'm also worried with a 10-year-old computer. Oh, not 10, but it's getting close to it. Right. Um, if I pull it apart, will it still work when I put it back together? Things sometimes happen during those surgical procedures. <laughs> well, we had some server upgrades we're doing on site. These machines are 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And these 10-year-old machines... They turned them off and moved them from one rack to the next rack and turned them back on again. And some of them didn't want it to start. Ooh. So it's <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. So if John pulls apart um, Humpty Dumpty, I'm not sure I'll be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again in a way that works. So yeah, right. probably not going to do that. I'll leave the I'll leave that CPU where it is. It's fine, really. Actually, now anyway. that I think about it, Humpty Dumpty's a good name for that computer. <laughs> oi, oi, no, no, no. That was an analogy, not a nickname. Okay, but all anyhow, right, carry all right. on. <laughs> Enough about the Humpty Dumpty trash can. Um, let's talk about your computer. You, you got a new one. I what did. I got the uh, the brand new, well, it's not brand new anymore. Well, it's still brand new, isn't it? It's the newest thing <laughs> they sell. But I've had it for about just under two months now. I got the uh, the new 16-inch MacBook Pro with the uh, M1 Max processor in it. I uh, I debated around for a long time whether to upgrade the RAM or the, the one terabyte. And part of me still kind of wishes that I'd at least done the storage. I don't really bump up against the, the, the 32 gigabytes of RAM very often. I don't Actually, I'm not sure if I, I ever have, but I, I don't anticipate that being a complaint. Part of me still one, one wishes maybe I'd gotten two terabytes worth of storage, but... Basically, if I, I'd spec'd either of those up, I would have pushed delivery on the machine back another month and a half Whoa. over the month that I had to wait just for the, the base config with the Max chip in it. Mm, okay. I definitely wanted, you know, the M1 Max because I wanted to, to, to get in on the M1, you know, the Apple Silicon, and they're making this transition. And these things are, you know, they're freaking expensive, so I wanted the best I could get with the intention that it will hopefully last me for years and years and years. And uh, Apple actually surprisingly offered me a $1,500 trade-in value, almost $1,500 trade-in value. I was going to say, that's exceptionally good. It is, especially considering, you know, it's, it. my previous MacBook Pro was, was the, the latest generation, you know, it was the first, I, I think there might have been one iteration since, just a tiny spec bump or something, but it was the first 16-inch. Uh, I did have the uh, Intel Core i9 in it, so it was the best processor you could get at the time. Yeah. It had a terabyte of storage and 32 gigabytes of RAM as well. But uh, I was surprised to see they were offering that much of a trade-in value. And like in the time I was mulling it over, just over the course of a couple of weeks, the trade-in value dropped by about 15 or 20 bucks. So I was like, that's only going to go down. It's, you know, yeah. it, it's it's at its peak right now, and it's only going to go down the more of them they get traded in. So mm, definitely. If I if I want to do this thing and I want to you know capture that savings toward the new one, then I really need to act on this. So that's that's what I ended up doing. But uh, I absolutely okay. love this laptop. It is, in my opinion, and the best computer, just period, like the Apple has ever made. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's a dream. I never. I have yet to do anything that that pushes the fans up. I've I've never heard them. Not one time, you know, and I've been playing with Swift UI and Xcode even. <laughs> yeah. Well, that'll do it. If you, anything you'll do it, that'll do uh, it. Well, it did the old one, man. You could have fried eggs on that thing. I didn't need cast iron. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Yeah. But I just, I love this machine. It's a dream. I really like the new form factor. It's a, uh, mm-hmm. it feels kind of a little bit bulkier than the previous generation in some ways, but at the same time, it kind of feels a little bit slimmer. Like the footprint didn't get any bigger. And it's honestly, like, I know that, like, if you look at the specs, there it's it's a little bit thicker, but it doesn't feel thicker in the hand, but I just, I like the new form factor, the way things are kind of flat on the top and rounded at the bottom, and it's, it's just really nice. I just really love it. That's awesome. So I like using it, and of course, it's got, you know, they, it's, it's got the good keyboards in it, nice backlit keys, and nice and clicky and they don't get doomed by a piece of dust like the old butterfly keys <laughs> did <laughs> yeah it's funny you should say that because i i've i've had a macbook pro mm-hmm. since 2018 um with those with those supposedly dodgy keys i never had a problem yeah um but i mean i'm not saying that it wasn't a problem don't get me wrong and i'm not saying that i liked those keys because i didn't yeah um but you know so how long have you had it now uh i got it uh midway through december i think is when it finally came in about the second week of december okay so and i had ordered it earlier in november it took it it was it was somewhere right around a month okay and it would have been well after the new year before it came in if i had got it with uh if i had upgraded the ram or the 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 drive in it at all i guess what i was trying to get at is that you've had a good chance then oh yeah six seven weeks to really sink your teeth in and just Mm -hmm. see what it can do and yeah yeah i mean i've uh, it's it's an amazing laptop, and I looked at that, and I also then looked at the price, and I'm like, yeah, no. Um, I uh, so the other piece of news on my side is that um, so my daughter has been accepted into university, um, so she's going off to uni starting in another month's time. Uh, I say going congratulations off to in, in air quotes. Thank you. Um, so proud of my girl. Um, but the thing is that um. You know, when should I say going off to uni? You know, she, we live near enough to the uni; she'll just commute. She's not going to live on on res right. uh, or on campus, as they say in the in, in America. But it's still a big step and a big emotional thing when they when they start college. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. And when she finished high school, she had to hand back the school laptop, which is a somewhat I think calling it an old dodgy MacBook Air thirteen inch, thirteen point three inch, or whatever, would mm-hmm. be um, generous. It was beyond dodgy. It was so old. It was something like a six-year-old laptop. The battery held no charge at all. Um, if you you know disconnected it for more than sixty seconds, it would die. Kind of battery. Yeah, it was just horrific. So slow, so terrible. So she had to hand it back, but that left her laptopless. Mm-hmm. Laptop. Yeah, laptopless. Anyway, and so I gave her my MacBook Pro mm-hmm. um, until we knew she'd be, get accepted into university so she used my macbook pro for over the you know november december and through january mm-hmm. when she was accepted into uni we're like right that's it getting your laptop so she wanted a ah well i got her the entry-level macbook air mm-hmm. um m1 which is basically you know more than enough for her needs she absolutely loves it honestly that machine's a beast man clay loves his i know he uh when when i was ordering my macbook pro he and i were both talking about it and I think mm. he still toys with the idea a little bit of, of upgrading to the MacBook Pro, but ultimately, at the end of the day, every time we're discussing it, he was like, man, this Air is still so good. It, it really is all I need. I'm happy with it. Yeah. We'll see. Um, so Kirsten, my, my wife, she got um, 
she got them at the M1 MacBook Air. Mm-hmm. Um, it was literally just after it came out. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of a long, sad story behind it, but never mind. She ended up with one and it was gold. Uh, so it's the gold M1 mm-hmm. um, 13-inch MacBook Air. And um, and she's, the first thing she said to me, she used it for a day and she said, it's not burning my legs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I'm using it, it's not burning yep. my legs. And, and, and she said, and it's really fast and it's mm-hmm. lighter. And I'm like, yeah. She said, I like this laptop. It's very nice. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, good. That's the best I'm ever going to get as uh, how much she's in love with that laptop. That's the best I'll get from her. Um, so anyway, um, so Maddie, my daughter, got um, exactly the same model, uh, mm-hmm. except she got hers in space gray, mm-hmm. not silver. Yeah, space gray looks better, Dad. I'm like, I love I some space gray, man. I don't know whether we can like be father and daughter anymore. I'm sorry. Wow. It's, it's like, you know, Space Gray. It's your laptop. You can have Space Gray if you want Space Gray. Don't be hating on the Space Gray, man. I love me some Space Gray. Mm-hmm. Well, I love my silver. I'm a boring nerd, though. I just love my silver. It just looks so natural. Uh, the silver's nice, too. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't flake off after uh, extended use. Uh, there is Although, that. I think the Space Gray, I think the Space Gray finishes that Apple are using recently are far better um, than... Anyway, what I saw in the past. Mm-hmm. Anyway, never mind. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I I got my MacBook Pro back, and I looked at it, and I'm like, you know what? I want I want in on some M1 action. So I, <laughs> I currently have I currently have my MacBook Pro um, listed for sale. Uh, so once it sells, I'm going to put the money that I make from that into getting a uh, M1 MacBook. I don't know if it'll be a MacBook or Air or a MacBook Pro. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to try and bridge the gap to a MacBook Pro, but I do not think I can bridge all the way up to an M1 Max. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? Like That's like a bridge too fast. Yeah. Well, with it being a secondary machine, I don't know that I'd ever advocate for the Max. Yeah. Honestly, the M1 Pro, even just a base M1, is, is really all most people need on a consumer level. I really wish... I w- I'd, I'd like to find a good consumer display option for this thing because I'll tell you what's happening now is I frequently find myself sitting at my desk using my MacBook Pro on its 16-inch display, which is a beautiful display. Mm. The only thing that's hurting that display is, you know, a little bit of screen real estate. Yeah. And right behind it, my iMac sits dark and cries. <laughs> 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 because I just want to yeah. use the I, I want to use the MacBook Pro. Uh, so I'm really... Yeah. I was about ready to to maybe pull the trigger on on an external display for it, but then I, I had some some cat bed issues that that cost me a lot of money. <laughs> I don't regret them, and and I would you know I would repeat the decision in a heartbeat because you know like if I have it, I'm going to do whatever it takes because those pets those cats are my babies and they get what they need. But I don't have a budget for anything else for a little while now, so yeah. I just uh, the iMac's going to stick around for a while longer, I guess, and I'll probably just spend more time using my laptop than anything. But I, well, I for I, for a few moments, I was I was entertaining the dream of like just relegating this iMac to a desk in the guest room so that it could like service and you know network attached storage and backup and stuff like that, and going back to just a single machine, you know, for most of my primary mm-hmm. use and just docking it at home and taking it with me. Yeah. And I still probably will do that one day. That's that's the part where I kind of wished maybe I'd done a little bit more in storage and RAM, but I'll be fine. I think I, I think you'll be fine. Uh, yeah. In the end, um, my driver for wanting to go to the not the Air, go to the Pro, is going to be the number of external screens it can drive. So I want to be able to, in the event that my you know my beautiful Humpty Dumpty trash mm-hmm. can Mac Pro, which is now going to stick. Thank you, by the way. Um, 
is um, <laughs> if it dies so uh, for for one reason. Oh, yeah, it's fine. If it dies for some reason, then yeah. I'll be able to plug in a Thunderbolt dock, and away I go with two external displays again, mm-hmm. which you can't do on an M1 Mac Mini or yeah. an M1 macbook air which is exactly why i hadn't got one before and that was exactly what drove me so you might want to consider at least the m1 pro yeah exactly and and that if you recall our conversation episode 103 Mm -hmm. the m1 the mac pro m1s weren't out at that point Mm -hmm. so yeah anyway all right enough about max and so on but i'm i'm glad you're happy with your purchase i am envious and i will be getting my own uh m1 macbook pro at some point uh but you know must sell one first finances recover second and mm-hmm. then act and what what model was your macbook pro is, is I, I'm, I'm assuming uh, you, 2018 you don't have a, a good trade-in value well that's not much older than mine was did you look at the trade-in value from apple max trade-in um i hadn't put in the serial number i literally only listed it today so this is all pretty fresh mm-hmm. um but the maximum listed value they would give you for any uh, macbook pro was uh 1050 so I don't know. Wow! So in Australia, the, that's for any of them. That, okay, two problems. Yeah, two problems. One, that's Australian dollars, and two, um, the market in Australia for used mm-hmm. Apple products is not as strong, so the trade-ins aren't as good. Yeah. So in the US, it's a massive market, it's an enormous market, mm-hmm. and so when you've got that kind of scale, you can offer more because you know you're going to turn your product pretty quick. Yeah. Well, it sounds like I really made the right decision because it sounds like that trade-in value is plummeted pretty quickly. That's, I think you did. I, like I said, I've had the thing for almost two months now, but relatively speaking, that wasn't that long ago. So, yeah, well, that's true. But, I mean, so mine was a 2018. Uh, so is. I haven't sold it yet. So it's a um, 2.7 gigahertz uh, quad-core i7, mm-hmm. uh, and it's got 16 gig of RAM, and which was uh, and uh, 512 gig solid-state drive. Mm-hmm. So it's a 13-inch touch bar with the um, the keys that everyone hated, but I didn't mind them, to be honest, so yeah. whatever. Um, four Thunderbolt, four, um, three do- uh, ports on it, and um, yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful machine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's um, It's been well cared for and just hasn't had a hell of a lot of use for the last two years. Thank you, COVID. But, you yeah. know, hey. Anyway. If I may interject right. a, a slightly controversial hmm. opinion here. I, yeah. Every now and then, I must confess that I kind of miss the touch bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, I'm not gonna miss it. I uh, I can't wait for it to die forever and never I, come I, back. I, but I'm aware right. of how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, my thoughts have not changed on the subject. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving on, uh, changing changing gears. Then you know what um, really sold me on the touch bar before we change gears really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> sure, go on. So there, there's this this Apple service extension item that you can use called Quick Actions. And I was able to mm-hmm. add buttons into the touch bar for HomeKit. That's what right. I really used it for more than anything. That's what I kind of missed because like I just there was always a touch bar button there to turn on my desk lamp and stuff like that. Yeah, okay. No, I can I can understand that. I mean, I did have ones there as well for things like uh, uh, I had one for activating um, the the mute um, mm-hmm. on all the applications. So so. Let's say I'm using Teams or Skype or whatever it was because we there's a while there where we were using Skype for business and Teams. So I had a global mute, which was an Apple script, and I was triggering that from a button that I linked to an action that was on the touch bar. So right. from any application, it was it was displayable on there. I just tap the button away. Okay. Yeah. Things like that are what make me miss it. Yeah. Mind you, once it was docked and I had an external keyboard plugged into it, 
um, it was much easier to map that to uh, F19 mm-hmm. because with an Apple extended keyboard, I get function keys, you know, and right. I can just do that. But anyway, swings and roundabouts, I get it. I understand why you like the touch bar. I still hate it and I will always hate it forever and it needs to die. <laughs> Anyhow, moving on. Well, it has. <laughs> yes, I know, but I won't be truly satisfied until it's gone from Apple's website and all the they ever sell. Are they still selling something with it? Yeah, pretty sure they are. Oh, yeah, that there was the, the, the M1 MacBook Pro. One model. The 13-inch. Yeah. I think it's still got uh-huh. it, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. I'm like, what? What? Apple? Why? The, the what? MacBook Air had never had it, excuse. right? Uh, no. So no, it's just that so. one MacBook Pro they're still selling. Correct. That's mine. That's what I think, yeah. And and you're right. going to dance a jig when it's finally gone. Damn right I am. I, I suspect course, no probably I suspect probably this year. Yeah, I think so too, yeah. I think it'll be gone by the end of this year. Uh, mind you, we're only in January, so it's not yeah. that bold of prediction. Well, I, th- I think but... that we're going to get. I think they're going to do something about the uh, the large iMac, or at least I hope they will do something about the large iMac. Although I won't be able to get one, like I had originally toyed with the idea of possibly getting one. But I think they they they're going to address that and maybe possibly address the Mac Pro. Yeah, and then I think we're going to be moving into like M2 territory, and I doubt the Touch Bar will survive M2. No, I don't think it will either. Uh, and I'm really curious to see well, i don't know if excited is the word but i'm going to go with curious what they're going to do with the the mac pro because the 2019 mac pro had just enough um oddities to it mm-hmm. that has me concerned so it's like yeah it's upgradable like you can upgrade the hard drives in it but you need this other pegasus enclosure thing mm-hmm. and it's like really expensive and then these expansion modules, they're like... Those upgrades are possible, but they're costly. Yeah, exactly. And there are these MPX modules, and it's like, it's not really the same thing as slapping in a 2.5-inch drive. You need another module before you can do that. It's like, ugh. So I was like, if that's the way they're going to approach it, and they're happy to do that, and people have accepted that because it was better than what they were given previously, and the, the you know, beautiful computer sitting in front of me, let's say. Fine. Um... Anyway, it's just I, I I think that they may take that to the next that next step again mm-hmm. with the uh, with the revised M1 based Mac Pro. We'll see if I'm right. Like I mean, they may do some. What I'm getting at is I think they might do certain upgrades, but they'll be proprietary cards, and right. it'll be like, well, is that really the upgradeability we're looking for, or have you missed the point, Apple? Um, I don't know. Yeah, but we'll see. We'll see. And I probably won't be able to afford one anyway, so it's a moot point. Hey, you can upgrade any component you want as long as you buy it from us. <laughs> oh, that's great. That is. Isn't it, isn't it awesome, though, that both of the, all of the bits that I've upgraded on my Mac Pro are non-Apple? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What does it tell you, Apple? I do I do miss the days that, like, just recently I upgraded my iMac from uh, the... It shames me to admit that I rocked this this beautiful 27-inch iMac for years with the original stock 8 gigabytes of RAM. <laughs> yeah. I did recently, not too long ago, uh, late summer, I think it was, I upgraded it to uh, 40 gigabytes because I bought 32 to add to that 8 from uh, OWC. And I, mm-hmm. this is probably the last machine I'll ever have I can do that with. Yeah. that That is kind of sad because I'll never buy a Mac Pro. No. Well, I didn't think I would either. Well, okay. I actually did have an Halem MacBook Mac mm. Pro back in the day, 2000 and, uh, 2009. But yeah, um, so I did I did want, I ridiculed the Mac Pro 2013 when it first came out. Mm-hmm. 
but um, it was still the best option for me right. last year when I got it. Anyway, all right, we are now going to change gears. Okay. If that's okay. I'm ready. So um, I want to talk about uh, something else that's happened um, in the, the intervening little while, and that is um, what I've been doing with audiobook, mm-hmm. uh, narrating uh, audiobooks. So some some listeners may know, some may not, but uh, about a year and a half ago, I did a, a book called The Knack of Selling, which was... Um, uh, so knack of selling is uh, 10 steps to selling the Australian way. So it's an Australian, um, book basically for people that are in the sales industry, uh, any kind of selling. I, I did a couple of auditions, mm-hmm. but was not successful until recently. So I got, um, I just completed my second audio book as a narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's called shoot like a ninja, which is, Essentially, a book about how to make your photography business more successful. Mm-hmm. So when I when I did finish this, and it was then publicly available, obviously the links are all up on uh, the Engineer Network website, um, and um, I put back I put up my uh, my higher page again. I hit it there for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't sure I'd put it up again. I thought maybe it'd be a one off, but it wasn't. So obviously, someone out there still thinks that my voice is worth listening to for <laughs> narrating their book. Um, and this, this one I did, uh, I think from my own personal, like the end product was the same level of quality, more or less as knack of selling, but I, I did a much better job personally in managing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like the first one I had all sorts of issues with, um, equipment. I had to re-record almost two thirds of the book cause I had, I had like cable issues and microphone issues mm-hmm. and um, I, I'd learned my lesson first from doing that last time is you record in stages, edit in stages. You don't do it all in one hit just to make sure you don't have issues with equipment. And uh, anyway, so you don't, you don't, I did a much better you don't, job. You don't do like a pro rapper and just step in the booth and get it in one take? Yeah, no. <laughs> no, doesn't work so good with a four-hour book. I got to admit I'm um, a little less impressed now. Oh well, I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, no, I'll I'm forgive not, you. I'm sorry, not sorry. I mean, in we we end, have the joy um, of editing for a reason. Well, yes, but I mean, the fact is that you will, no matter how much you like to pretend that you can read it word for word, your brain will reword it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the way it works, and it's extremely difficult. It takes a lot of practice, and clearly, I need more. Uh, I've gotten a lot better at it though this time around. I had far fewer edits in in shoot like an ninja than I did in knack of selling. That's cool. I mean, knack of selling, like I said, I re-recorded two thirds of it. But yeah. In any case, um, it was made with the mic I'm talking on right now, which is an RE20, my Electro Voice RE20, which I have come to love. This microphone, I still haven't got around to getting a shock mount for it, but you know, to be honest, it hasn't really needed it too badly at this point. But then I'm, you know, I've got a boom arm that's separate from the table and it's independently mounted and all yeah. that. So. There's a lot of that depends on your habits. I have a tendency to be very animated while I sit in here and beat on the desk, and I couldn't mm. imagine going without a shock mount. But that's just me. Yeah, well, as, yeah, and and that's fair enough. Uh, with with when I'm recording the audio books, I I tend to for better acoustics record it, and you know I'm rec- standing standing, uh, but in my walk-in wardrobe. Yeah, which is not a very big walk-in wardrobe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not. Um, I mean, I have a big house. In a matter of speaking, it's a five-bedroom house, but. Honestly, um, the rooms aren't enormous and it's not like it's a mansion or something. So the walk-in wardrobe is therefore appropriately sized. Mm-hmm. You walk in that door and then you try and close that door. You have to turn in order to get make space for the door to close, right? Right. So 
it's pretty tight in there. I'll bet the clothes and stuff hanging in there, they'll make for great acoustics. That's exactly right. And that's exactly why I use it. Yeah. So the acoustics are so good, it's hard to ignore a space like that, except there's one problem. I know that you're not really sweltering at the moment, but we are because it's the middle of summer. Yeah, no, I got a nice balmy 14 degrees Fahrenheit outside. <laughs> I hate you right now. And is, snow. <laughs> but I see, oh, now I doubly hate you now. Yeah. So I love snow and I love the cold. That's why I didn't mind living in Calgary for two and a half years, but never mind that. Um, anyhow, the point is that recording an audiobook when it is, um, you know, in the in the nineties in mm-hmm. Fahrenheit, yeah, um, in that walk-in wardrobe is a special kind of hell, yeah, uh, and, <laughs> and torture that you have not known. So I can imagine. I recorded, yeah, I recorded in fifteen minutes maximum uh, stints. So what I did was I would, um, by the time I got to about the thirteen minute mark, and I was drenched in my own sweat. Um, I would open, I would more or less, I would pause at a at a appropriate moment. I would go out, stand in front of a fan, um, gulp down a whole bunch of water, <laughs> use a towel to dry off all the sweat, and then I'd put the headphones back on. I'd go back in, close the door again, round, two. and I'd do another 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, and I would do it. So the whole book was recorded in fifteen minute chunks, much like that, on repeat, over and over and over until I finished it. Yeah, there's about four hours of of unedited audio, and that's edited down to about three hours and fifteen minutes. So all in all, that was the most uh, difficult. That was the most difficult recording session I have ever done in my life, um, because of the temperature. And I've just convinced myself that if I get more audiobooks with long recording sessions, mm-hmm. um, I'm just going to build myself a podcasting booth in the shed, and I'm just going to podcast from there. And I'm going to get adducted because uh, you can get cheap air conditioners, like you know the portable air conditioners that got the little hot air vent that goes out the window. And- yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I can get one of those and pipe that in through a series of sound dampened ducts that's actually not as expensive as you might think. You know, you're looking at like 300 bucks, 400 bucks. So you don't hear the machine running. No, you won't hear the machine running and you can get isolation, you know, like like 15 dB of isolation. So what I'd do is I'd actually probably put it like outside the shed and Mm -hmm. then run it in through into the shed so you get insulation through the wall as well as through the walls of the the, um, sound booth. Right. I reckon... It'd probably cost me about one and a half grand to two grand to to do it and do it properly and just build it myself with all the materials. So it's not going to be a cheap exercise, but it's the sort of thing that then becomes my recording studio for anything. So I'm only going to do that if I get more audio books because it's really with podcasting I can live with it. Yeah. Um, but for an audio book, when you're talking about multiple hours, and all it's going to take is someone to come to me with a novel and say, "Hey, can you do this novel?" Mm-hmm. And how many hours is that? Twenty hours. I'm like, oh, yeah, goodbye. I would be I would be beyond dead. I'd be dead, become a zombie, and then killed again. Anyway, so um, there you go. So uh, and again, just to be clear, these are not audio books that I wrote. I just narrated them. Mm-hmm. Um, so and if you have anything you want narration for, um, reach out, get in touch, and we'll see what we can do. All right, sweet. And uh, yeah, that's it on the audiobook thing. So, right. Next bit of news, and this now leads into the main topic mm-hmm. um, more directly and more obviously. So we're going to talk about wind farms, but um, I bought my first new car in eight years. So my previous car was my um, favorite fun little manual um, Honda Jazz Vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And um, it's been a fantastically reliable, solid, uh, beautiful car to drive. Uh, I mean, I know it's a hatchback and I know it's manual, but you know what? I love driving that thing. Um, it's funny, you know, because my wife would sometimes say, oh, you prefer, you know, driving the Fortuna because it's much bigger. It's certainly top of the line. It's all had all the nice leather seats and everything and so on and so forth, the big Fortuna four-wheel drive. Right. To be honest, I actually preferred driving the Jazz. I mean, I would drive the, the Fortuna, but I preferred driving the Jazz. And I, I preferred the Jazz because it was easy to park and it was faster than the Fortuna, which, to be honest, for a big four-wheel drive is not, you know, when you go to diesel, is not that hard to be faster than that off the line. Um, it was just more fun to drive, you know? Yeah. So anyway, but it had done its time. It had served its purpose, and eight years I'd long and I'd long since paid it out and owned it, and we still have it. In fact, um, I'm going to be giving that car to my oldest son mm-hmm. um, when he gets his license in a few months' time. Fingers crossed. Hopefully, he passes the test. We'll see how we go. Anyway, so I decided to buy my first new car. So I, I, some people are going to have a reaction, and that's fine. But I bought myself a Tesla, and, um. I got one of the cheapest builds you could get, um, which is the standard range plus a Model 3. I can't afford a Model S. I can't afford a Model X. And even if I could afford a Model Y, they still don't sell them in Australia. So I couldn't get a Model Y. So it was basically the cheapest one that I could get. Um, And I could only really just afford to get that uh, in the color that I wanted, which was red. And I always wanted a white interior. Yeah. And so, you know, I got those two bits. So you could argue it wasn't the cheapest, but it was close enough to it. Right. You know what, though? Mm. I say good on you for the Model 3. I'm I'm kind of pleased to hear that you bought it because, like, you know, as as far as green initiatives go and, and trying to, to clean up the environment and, and our energy impact and stuff like that with the, the electric cars, I really like the idea. I really look forward to hopefully myself having one one day. But mm. to be honest, until they make these things more accessible to the average Joe, yeah, they're really honestly primarily still just a toy for the uh, very upper middle class and the rich. Yep. And so I, I I applaud anybody that 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 you know pushes their their wallet to speak toward the. Seems kind of weird to call a car with that price tag the economy model, but <laughs> that is, yeah, you're not wrong. I think everybody that does is going to slowly but surely eat away at that price tag and, and make more affordable options viable. So good on you for that. Yeah, I, uh, my problem is that, you know, here's the funny thing, right? Mm-hmm. Tesla in Australia, um, all of the other models are so much more expensive. Not mm-hmm. in the States, but they are here because they attract, they cross a price threshold and they get hit with an additional tax they call, the Australian government call it the luxury car tax. Mm. So the the Tesla Model 3 is essentially a straight currency conversion. There's some other certification, state taxes, federal taxes, and so on and so forth. But the price is actually like, and yeah, import duties on a BS. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's actually a relatively good reflection of what that car should probably be worth in Australia. Right. And it's priced. Um, so anyway, so it's not classed as a luxury car. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that I, I believe that it is honestly, if that's the measure of what is a luxury car is like, then, you know, having those sort of, I know they're not leather seats, but having the really nice, comfortable leather seats, the way this thing drives, mm-hmm. first of all, yes, it's a sports car, 
And yes, it's a luxury sports car. Yeah. In my opinion. But then again, I haven't driven a lot of luxury sports cars, so what would I know? Right. I haven't even driven a BMW in my whole life. I haven't driven a BMW. I haven't even been in a BMW. I've been in a Mercedes, but I haven't driven one very far. You know, like yeah, 20 meters is not far. Uh, call it how many yards that is. You know, That's like the thing, yards. though. It's, it's all a relative perspective. And if you're happy of with course. it and you consider it sporty for you, that's all that matters. Well, I think the problem is that the um, insurance companies count as a sports car. Oh, yeah, so that, that's you, a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's why I say it's a sports car because I'm yeah. being in the insurance on it is painful. All right, so just to be fair, um, the only way I can afford this car is on a seven-year loan mm-hmm. and – the bank's going to own it for a long time, yeah. basically, until I can pay them back. And Well, you um, own it, it but they a have f- a spare set of keys, right? Um, I think the bank would look at it like this. They own it. I'm just allowed to drive it from time to time. <laughs> but anyway, um, let's not go there. Okay. So the point is that um, it's um, funnily enough, though, and this is, this is the thing that melts some people's brains. Um, we sold our Toyota Fortuna because yeah, it was six, seven years old, and you know, or six and a bit years old, and it was, uh, um, yeah, we we needed uh, we used that money to get my daughter a car, mm-hmm. um, which was more fitting for her, like better fuel economy, smaller, um, just more suitable for her at the stage of her life, right? Because you know, going to uni needs a car, yada yada yada. Yeah. So anyway, um, but that Fortuna when I bought it, that cost more than the Model Three does. So a big four-wheel drive, mm-hmm. and this is the thing that I find interesting, is the perspective you get from people. If I bought like a top-of-the-line um, Fortuna, it costs more than this. If I if I were to get even an, a mid-level um, uh, Land Cruiser Prado or a Land Cruiser GXL 100, yeah, these are all Toyota prices. They are all more expensive mm-hmm. and some of them significantly more than the Model 3. So I find it ironic. You know, you rock up in a Tesla, Mm-hmm. And people think you made a money. You rock up in a Land Cruiser 100 GXL. People don't think you made a money. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Do you do realize that that car is worth twenty five thousand dollars more than this one? Yeah. And people are like, what? What? No, really? I'm like, yeah, really? Actually. So anyway, it's um, it is affordable in a sense, but calling it a car that anyone can afford is absolute BS. Yeah. And to your point, that is, you know, so a car that can actually, that most people could afford, it is not. Yeah. That, um, that, I, I, I admit that. I absolutely admit that. Yeah, but still, you're, you're, you're driving. Every purchase of it drives that price just a little lower for future generations. Yeah, and, and exactly right. Uh, and one further bit of my justification to myself more than anything is that I'm also 45 years old. Um, I have a house. It's um, gone up a lot in value. You know, I've got, there's reasons the bank will lend me the money mm-hmm. to get a car like that. Yeah. Um, so in any case, um, there will be listeners listening right now. And believe me, I've considered this possibility already that this is my midlife crisis thing. So you're supposed to buy a sports car as a guy in your midlife crisis. That's what I've been told. That's the script that's written for me. Hey, of the um, other things you could <laughs> supposedly be doing in your midlife crisis, this is pretty harmless. <laughs> that's what I figured. Yeah. And I also think that that is an absolute trope. It's absolute BS as well, and I think that that is um that is a it's a it's a horrible um almost a, a, a it's not toxic masculinity, but it is a toxic um stereotype that's pushed on middle aged men, and I think it's absolute. I will not disagree. Yeah, it's just yeah. Anyway, so spare me anyone who's thinking that, please. Anyway, all right. So um, 
long long story short, and maybe that's another episode about what I think about what the Tesla is like to drive. Let's just summarize it by simply saying, um, you know, I love this car. It's an amazing car. It is by far and away the best car I have ever driven. Having said that, it's not like I'm a car professional car reviewer. I haven't driven a hundred cars of different kinds. I've probably driven a probably thirty different cars in my life. Mm. If I were to think carefully about all the ones I've driven. But none of them was a Bentley, none of them was a Rolls-Royce, none of them was so, a BMW, for example. So, you know, limited sample set. What I'm hearing here is we shouldn't expect a uh, Chichi on Cars channel anytime soon. <laughs> I think that's a reference to to, um, to Casey Liss's uh, Casey on Cars, yeah. um, for which he did four reviews and hasn't done any more and says he's selling all his gear or something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no, probably not. Okay. There are people out there that really do love their cars um, far more than I do. But I will be doing more reviews of it. Um, but I want to do them more in pieces. And so this is what basically drove me down this path. <laughs> I drove, sorry, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm being almost funny. So what, what pushed me it. down this path. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, what pushed me down this path was the fact that I'm like, you know what? Um, I'm going to get myself a, um, it's a DJI Osmo Action, which I got, you know, secondhand, of course. Um, <laughs> spent all the money on the car. Anyway, couldn't afford a new um a new camera. Anyway, so I got a uh, an action camera, mm-hmm. and because uh, I'd never owned one before, and I did my research, and these things were competitively priced, and it's better than a GoPro in some respects. That's probably flame worthy. I'm sure I'll get flame for that one, but never mind that. Um, please email me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't mind. You can if you want. Um, but anyway, so I decided to start a uh, a branch if you will of this podcast but a video version of it called uh, that I've called pragmatic electric so the whole idea of pragmatic electric is some content I've just got to be honest it's better is in video form mm-hmm. so to be clear what it isn't pragmatic electric is not going to be a replication of this show Pragmatic Electric is not going to take over and Pragmatic will then stop as a podcast. That is also not going to happen because of Pragmatic Electric. It is simply a, think of it as a supplement to things that I can't as easily cover in audio form. It's better in a video form. Having said that, I'm also going to have a little bit of fun with it. I'm going to do some things that I like doing, which is oddly enough, drive the car places. So for the moment, I've um, over the Christmas holidays, which have ended, of course, at this point, we're now um, almost by the time this episode gets released, it'll be in, will be in February, um, just the first week of February. Mm-hmm. So um, over my Christmas holidays, I took a month off from work because I needed a break, um, and I did a whole bunch of recording and editing, and I have cre- I've created five episodes. So the first two episodes are live at the moment of recording, and the third one will be up next week. So when this goes live, there'll be three episodes live. Now, the way I've done this, because you know I'm a podcaster and I believe in um, an open podcasting ecosystem, like uh, you know, it sounds a little bit like podcasting 2.0, mm-hmm. but I mean, the fact is that podcasting has always been an open ecosystem and I want to see that continue. So I'm not going to just upload it to YouTube. Yes, I have got the Engineer Network channel on YouTube. So yes, you can, in fact, go and watch it on YouTube if you want to. That's totally okay. Um, but I wasn't going to just put it on YouTube. So I've created a video podcast or vodcast, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is also linked on the Engineer Network website. Right. So if you want, you can just go to engineer.network and have a look. And there it is. It's just listed. What I've done is I've updated the web, the front of the web page now. So there's a little icon showing a movie camera if it's video um, or a podcast icon if it's audio. 
So you can tell, you know, for new people coming to the website, they can see, oh, this is a video. All right, have a look at that. And it's got a different player. It's got an embedded YouTube player. Mm-hmm. And it has links uh, to the YouTube channel as well as to the individual videos, or you can play them in the embedded player on the actual episode itself. Uh, and it has its own RSS feed. So if you want, and this is more the intention, is you can actually watch it in um, podcast apps that support video. So those are ones, the ones that I've, I've tried it in. Uh, Downcast, which I find is really nice. Uh, Apple Podcasts app is also quite acceptable. Uh, and the podcasting 2.0 apps, you can actually also watch the video and stream Satoshi's as well, supporting all that extra chapter markers and all the extra good stuff that you get in uh, podcasting 2.0 enhanced apps. So um, one of them is Curiocaster, which is a web app, and the other one is Podfriend, and the Podfriend web app works well. It also works on Android. Um, but anyway, the point is that you can watch it without having to deal with YouTube if, the, if you don't want to deal with YouTube, and that's totally cool with me. So look for that. Uh, there's, there's links in the show notes, and, uh, and please check it out and let me know what you think. Um, it's sort of um, the whole video podcasting, vodcasting thing was a little bit interesting to set up because I'd never done it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out it's really not that different, and extending the website to handle it was really not that hard. So um, I found in a couple of example feeds um, from the ABC and SBS here locally right? and um, just did a check to make sure it would work before I went live. I'm hosting the video on my own virtual private server for the moment. Um, I've, I've already transitioned my first file across to Libsyn based on quota availability because... Um, yeah, Yeah, because <laughs> it's... yeah. If the problem with that is so so when when Libsyn did their upgrade, I I logged in today just to it's a long story, but I logged in, I had a look and it's like, oh, you've got 160 meg of, of quota. I'm like, really? Okay. Interesting. I didn't think I'd have that much left. And I'm like, oh, the 720p versions of all these, one of the episodes, which we're going to talk about, the wind farm one, mm-hmm. that would fit. So I, I threw that up there. But all the rest of them are hosted on the VPS. I may end up, if people a lot of people prefer watching it on that rather than YouTube. I may end up putting all of them on um, their own dedicated VPS, perhaps mm-hmm. like a storage VPS that's got more upload bandwidth than my current VPS. So we'll see what happens. We'll see. We'll see. I have looked into storage VPSs and everything, mm-hmm. and um, they're actually. It's funny if you add up how much it costs. Right. It's actually a quarter of the price to have a storage VPS mm-hmm. um, that would do the job at the sort of traffic volumes that I, I if it if it really took off, right, it would still be okay. Um, it's a quarter of the price of Libsyn. Yeah. Of course, that's one storage VPS. Mm-hmm. It's not a CDN, and I know that. So you know. Yeah. And, yeah. But I'm I'm watching my downloads, uh, and, and it's not tracked. So I'm I'm watching my download bandwidth actually get mm-hmm. eaten up, and you can always tell because you'll see a little, um, precisely the same size megabyte. Uh, for the same time time period, so you can see when people are watching the episode. Yeah, um, through that. But I'm keeping an eye on it. So I've done five episodes. Um, the first episode, I've, I've so I've covered well, in no in no particular order. I've done an episode with my initial impressions of um, of the Tesla, and I and I mean more so about uh, like people's reactions to it, um, which I which is you know it has been very interesting. I won't feel free to watch the video for the thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Um, that one's live. That was the first episode. Um, there's an episode coming out shortly that talking about the challenges of driving uh, long distances in Australia in an electric car, mm-hmm. which is a which is a different proposition to Europe and to the United States. Yeah. Um, well, to, and, to most yeah. of the United States. 
<laughs> well, yeah, to most of the United States. Probably pretty similar to like trying to drive in Texas. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. I mean, the difference is that Tesla have been active putting in superchargers all over the place, whereas in Australia, the northernmost supercharger mm-hmm. um, is about 120 k's north of where I live um, in, in Gympie. And north, yeah. and what's your range on that? Well, okay, so I, I get a three hundred and fifty roughly kilometers oh, of range. Okay, so that's doable. So kilometers, it's doable. Oh yeah. yeah, of course. But I mean, after that, you're on your own. You you don't have any more Tesla superchargers. You've got the Queensland government installed these things called the Queensland Electric Superhighway. Mm-hmm. But these chargers aren't like superchargers. These are some like the entry level. They're like fifty kilowatts, whereas the superchargers like you know can be hundred plus kilowatts, and you'll you'll be in and out inside 30 minutes on a Tesla supercharger, whereas these ones are like 45 minutes to an hour if you want to go completely full. Right. Um, and the, the problem with that is because, the and when they did the installation originally, these um, the Queensland Electric Superhighway goes all the way from the border of New South Wales all the way up to Port Douglas, which is something ridiculous like 1,800 kilometres, which is something like, I don't know, 1,200 miles. It's... um or uh, a thousand miles plus, whatever. It's 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 a very very long way, and there's enough of those super those charges to get you from one from one end to the other. But there's only one of them, so you'll go to like Childers, for example, and there's one charger. If there's another car charging, too bad. You got to wait for it to finish. So all the Tesla superchargers have always got at least three or four that you could use, whereas not the case with the the government ones. Right. So anyway, um that's that's I cover a lot of that in the video anyway. Um uh for something different, uh I did a country road drive. So I actually drove up and back down one of my uh a winding road that I thought was particularly scenic. Um but I thought that was different, just something different. Give a little bit of the history of the area and stuff like that. Um, and then I also reviewed the sunshade that I got because the glass roof is awfully nice, but it's also awfully hot in the summer in Australia. Yeah. I suspect people in Florida would have a similar complaint. Um, uh, anyway. And then finally, I did an episode about a wind farm, and that's what we're going to talk about here. Excellent. This episode is brought to you by Many Tricks, makers of helpful apps for the Mac, whose apps do, well, you guessed it, Many Tricks. Their apps include Butler, Keymail, Leech, Desktop Curtain, TimeSync, Usher 2, MenuWare, Moom, Name Mangler, Witch, and Resolutionator. There's so much to talk about for each app that they make, so we're just going to touch on some highlights. Usher 2, the return of the classic Usher, but now it's a full 64-bit app that works with the latest versions of macOS, including Monterey. So what is Usher? It's an amazing, powerful media management and playback app that can see movies you have in TV, music and photos apps or any library location you'd prefer on your Mac. It can organize them for you if you like. You can create advanced playlists and sorting criteria and you can even edit their information all from within Usher. Menuware puts your Mac's menu anywhere. Well, wherever your mouse pointer is. It's such a simple idea that is so very handy. Instead of having to mouse up to the top of the screen, press a hotkey of your choice and Menuware puts the menu right where your mouse is. You show the current active apps menu or the entire menu, then you pick your app from there if you prefer. And as another bonus time saver, you can even hide the menus that you rarely use. It's a great time saver for me and I bought it within a minute of trying it because I saw the value in it immediately. Moom. 
makes it easy to move any of your windows to whatever screen positions that you want. Halves, corners, edges, any fraction you like of the screen. And then you can even save and recall your favorite window arrangements with a special auto-arrange feature when you connect or disconnect an external display. It has full touch bar support and keyboard integration with Adobe's apps and it also works perfectly on an iPad operating in sidecar mode. It's the first app that I load on a new Mac because it's just awesome. Name Mangler. You've got a whole bunch of files to rename quickly, efficiently and in large numbers? Well, then Name Mangler can help. It's designed for staged renaming sequences with powerful rejects pattern matching. Recent additions include a group by feature when making a sequence and title case conversions can now keep their existing formatting or convert to lowercase on word length. The best part is it shows you the result as you go. And if you mess something up, just revert back to where you started and try again. Which? You should think about which is a supercharger for your command tab app switcher. If you've got three or four documents open at once in any one app, then Witch's beautifully simple pop-up quickly lets you pick exactly the one you're looking for. You can switch between tabs as well as apps and app windows with horizontal, vertical or menu bar switching panels with text search for switching. You can show the frontmost app in the menu bar icon with full touch bar support and much, much more. And finally, Resolutionator. And it's so simple. A drop-down menu from the menu bar and you can change the resolution of whatever display you like that's currently connected to your Mac. The best part though, you can even set your resolution to fit more pixels than are actually there. It's very handy when you're stuck on your laptop and you need more screen real estate. Now that's just six of their great apps and that's only about half of them and they all work with the latest version of macOS Monterey. All of these apps have free trials that you can download from manytricksalloneword.com slash pragmatic and you can easily try them out before you buy them. They're all available from the website or through the Mac App Store. However, if you visit that URL, you can take advantage of a special discount off their very helpful apps exclusively for Engineered Network listeners. Simply use Causality25. That's Causality the word and 25 the numbers in the discount code box in the shopping cart to receive 25% off. This offer is only available to Engineered Network listeners for a limited time, so take advantage of it while you can. Thank you once again to Tricks for sponsoring the Engineered Network. We're finally made to our main topic an hour in, or thereabouts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, we made it. We did. We did. All right. So, um, wind farms. All right, here we go. Mm-hmm. So, here's the story as to how this happened first, because it wasn't, it wasn't entirely planned to be a video, but I had the camera with me. I'm like, you know what? Why don't we just do this? Um, so my oldest son, I mentioned before, he's going to get the my Honda Jazz as a hand-me-down um, when he gets his driving uh, license, driver's license. But in Australia, you need to get, uh, or at least in Queensland, you need 100 hours of recorded logged driving time before you can sit for your, um, the to go from a learner's permit to a provisional license. Uh, which means when you have a provisional license, you can drive alone. You don't need to have someone with that open license with you. Right. So uh, anyway, so in order to get his hours up to driving hours, he said, oh, um, you know, do you like peanuts? And I'm like, yeah, totally. Yeah, I love peanuts. What are you getting at? He said, well, we should go for a drive to Kingaroy because Kingaroy is famous in Australia, at least for peanuts. Like they're one of the largest peanut growing uh, areas in, in Australia. Mm-hmm. The soil out there is just perfect for growing peanuts. So okay, cool. So let's go and um, let's go to Kingaroy. Go get some peanuts. Fine, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, I, I could go down to the local supermarket and get a pack of peanuts, but the ones from Kingaroy are much nicer because they've <laughs> there's a place they call the Peanut Van, and they have 101 different uh, kinds of uh, of peanuts, flavored peanuts, boiled peanuts, and all sorts of different peanuts. Anyway, 
So um, on the drive down uh, out to Kingaroy, we got ourselves our requisite peanuts and so on. And then we head south towards Dolby to check out this wind farm that I'd heard about at a place called Cooper's Gap. Mm-hmm. So this is the second episode on um, on the channel. Have you actually, have you seen that episode? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Cool. Uh, I, I just thought it might be fun. And I know I have an odd idea of fun. We've established this previously. <laughs> I understand that. It's it's fine. Um, hopefully. So anyway, I thought, you know what? I did talk a lot about the specifics of Cooper's Gap. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't want to go on, to, on for about half an hour potentially was, well, okay, that's all well and good. And there's it's a massive wind farm. And I'll talk a little bit about the specifics here. And I cover that in the video. Um, and you get a good idea of what they look like, what they sound like. Mm-hmm. Um, but wind farms are a lot more than just one at Cooper's, Cooper's Gap. So I thought it'd be a good idea to do a bit of a deep dive into this. Now, we did briefly touch on wind generators back in very, very long time ago. Back in 2014, it was on one of the uh, battery problems. So episode two, the battery problem, mm-hmm. we had four follow-up episodes about it. So it was one of those follow-up episodes we did um, I, I did talk a little bit about it, but this is different and things have come a long way in the last nearly 10 years since we did that. Mm. So biggest question with a wind farm is where are you going to put them? And as I learned, it gets very windy at a wind farm. Who would have thought <laughs> that's the point, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I probably should have had my uh, my dead cat on a lapel microphone so apologies, the video has a little bit of wind noise and a few bits of it where uh, unfortunately, it, yeah, it swirled around a little bit um, as I did my best to hide behind the car to cut the wind out, but I didn't <laughs> fully succeed. Anyway. I think we need some behind right. the scenes footage. <laughs> no, no. I've only got the one camera, man. Okay, hey, no, I hear you I, there. Oh, damn. Anyway, all right. Um, so where do you put them? Uh, first of all, when they want to site a wind farm, the first thing I do is figure out if it's viable. And I used to think, oh well, I guess they just put up like a, you know, an anemometer, um, some wind totalizers, you know, up on a hillside or something like that, and they just put up there for a couple of years because I mean you'd want to be sure, right? You you don't want to spend millions and millions of dollars putting all these wind turbines up um, for a half baked wind survey, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. Um, so I figured. Yeah, that's what they do. But truth is, no, they don't. It's only really a couple of months, like a few months, maybe three or four months. Hmm. Um, generally not not a full year, generally not longer than that. And the reason is because they've got software modeling packages now that can take historical weather data, everything from, you know, like temperatures and pressures at ground level and various things. So, you know, the synoptic charts and so on and so forth mm-hmm. that, that uh, how many um, hectopascals or... Oh, God, what are those in hectopascals, pascals, kilopascals, North America is millibars, I think still, isn't it? I think so, um, yeah. I think so, yeah. So it's like air pressure. Mm-hmm. So all of that, because, uh, of course, the gradient, uh, the lines of the gradients, they're more compressed, indicate you know high wind. And so they can pull all that information into so a model. So they can predict where the winds will be. Yes. So they just need a sample on the ground at that height, and then they can overlay that inf- historical information, and they can figure out before and after their recorded data what the wind speeds would be like and determine if the spot is suitable. So that's basically how they do it. It's just more economical. Software package you know, saves mm-hmm. them a hell of a lot of time. And, of course, with that, that means that they can assess more areas over broader areas more accurately. So, um, yeah, that's kind of cool. So, anyway, 
Um, what they then do is they figure out, well, this is the, the absolute wind capacity um, for an ideal design. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing that I learned when I was reading, uh, reading up on this is I had heard, because you know, engineering is the art of trade-off. You, don't, you can't win everything. Either you optimize for one thing, which hurts you in another area, or you optimize for another thing. And it hurts you in a different area. So you, there's no such thing as a perfect solution. There is only a solution that is optimized for a certain set of variables or a certain end outcome. Yeah. So when it comes to putting up a wind farm, it's no different. Uh, your final capacity factor mm-hmm. is actually not just based on the wind capacity on the on the hillside. Um, it's also by how you design your turbines. Mm-hmm. So you can actually improve your capacity factor, but you will not get as much um, energy generated, let's say. Right. So, yeah, it's that's one of those sorts of trade-offs. So we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more in a minute. I would think a nice big a nice big gear on the backside of the blade and small gears on the generator. It's funny the way they do the gearboxing, yeah. um, which we will talk about a little bit. Okay. Um, but, yeah, you're not wrong. There are gearboxes that are used a lot, and there's issues with coupling to the grid and, and all sorts of stuff. But Okay. Um, but yeah, the size of the turbine is more the thing I'm talking about. It's like how big is big enough or how big is too big? Like where's that trade-off end? Right. So, okay. um, having said that, I just keep on talking about hillsides and obviously I'm talking about hillsides because well, Cooper's gap is, well, you know, it's a bunch of hills <laughs> and valleys, um, onshore. And mm-hmm. um, so as in, you know, not onshore wind farms, a lot of people have traditionally gone for them simply because they're easier to maintain and access. Mm-hmm. Um, you're generally in a less corrosive environment. I say generally, so you should need less maintenance because of corrosion. Right. Having said that, that's not always true because there's a lot of wind farms that are actually close to the coastline. Yeah. Um, like right up on the on headlands and bluffs and so on. So they still get some of that salt air. Yeah, they do. So... I don't think it's fair for me to sort of characterize and say, well, that's always a pro. It's generally, it can be a pro, not always. Um, there's some interesting cons though. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's onshore, it doesn't mean it's necessarily easy to build it because those massive turbine blades, those things are enormous. They're enormous. and They really are. I mean, we've got some of these wind farms in, in the States and I, I've had occasion to, to drive by them in a few different locations and stuff. And they're, they're, you can tell when you're looking at them, you know, from the roadway or whatever, that they're really big and they're really massive. But nothing really puts the scale of these things into your head until you actually drive by, you know, the big yeah. oversized tractor trailer apparatus they've set up to transport just a single blade and it's like the length mm-hmm. of three standard tractor trailers yeah it's you're yeah that that sounds about right it's insane yeah and, and it's like here's it really puts the scale of the size to, to into perspective 100 percent, absolutely and, and the thing that i found was most uh interesting for me is this one at cooper's gap well i mean it's in it's in mountains and mountain ranges Right, so what do you have in mountain ranges? You've got winding roads. So not only do you have a ridiculously long fan blade <laughs> you're trying to get right to this to, to where you need to put the the actual turbine, mm-hmm. you have to somehow get this thing up a winding road with hairpin bends all over the place. That thing don't bend and in the middle to turn curves. <laughs> yeah, and these things aren't designed to bend. Yeah, so. I had um, some video, uh, not some video, sorry. I found a website that had pictures of 
some of these fan blades traversing some of these winding roads. And it's truly, um, you know, what's that game where you slide all the little squares around? You've got one spare spot. You've got to slide the puzzle around to make a make a picture. It really seriously... Uh, I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember yeah, the name of it. It's just like that. Yep. It's like one of those games. It's like a sliding jigsaw puzzle. It's just crazy, right? Because you'd have to go up a little way. and Move it a little this way. Move it a little that way. Pull it forward six yeah. inches. Move it a little more. Yeah, so... Yeah, so literally the, some of those corners and double switchbacks, they'd have to do stuff like you go forward around one corner, mm-hmm. you get the back end slightly forward, and then you reverse the front end slightly, and then mm-hmm. you jack up one end slightly to clear a rock, mm-hmm. and then you go forward again. It's like it's like this thing is insane how they did it. Anyway, so that's a con. The next thing you know, the tractor's sitting parallel with the trailer <laughs> tail end, and the, and the blade's a big bridge going across the curve. <laughs> Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. It's kind of insane. So there's a couple of links in the show notes. You can, if you're interested, you can check it out. It's kind of crazy. Um, the obvious next con is the one that most people, I think, think of, which is, well, people live there. And you might think, well, yeah, but, you know, you're up in the mountains and no one lives up there. And they're like, well, well, yeah, they do. Maybe not as many. You're not going to have a multi-story building um, 250 kilometers inland from, from you know, Brisbane. Uh-huh. you're going to have farmers, okay? And farmers are people too, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you do have people living out there. It's low-density populations, but they have to listen to the sound that those turbines make. And I tell you what, listen to the video. Um, well, watch the video, but listen to the audio of the video. I actually got a really good sound grab of what they sound like. And I used to think, like, based on all the videos I'd seen and and so on, like, current affairs reporting programs and like the sound that these turbines made was more like a whoop 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 kind of sound yeah but this did not sound like you could describe it sort of like that but it doesn't do it justice no it really doesn't eh? it's it the best thing i could best analogy i could come up with is it sounded like someone was strangling a jet engine yeah it was just very very unnatural very unnatural and i cannot imagine how you would like in air quotes get used to it yeah. I, I just that's just mm. if you're living practically right underneath that thing it's going to be ever present yes exactly yeah so um that's definitely a con for those people that are living nearby and they're compensated don't get me wrong but i mean you yeah. know how much compensation are you going to take in financially for never being able to sleep a decent amount of sleep again don't know. <laughs> it's like uh, I mean, it's hard to I'm, put a dollar value on that it's one. Like I've been, I haven't, I haven't slept in six months. I've made five thousand dollars, but I'm ready to go postal. Yeah, a pin dropped, and then I start going. Anyway, never mind. Um, all right. So visually is another con. Some people look at these things on the mountainside. They say, "Well, this is what it looked like before and afterwards," and they're like, "Ugh, these things are really ugly," and they destroy the look of it. And it's just like, "Ugh, I don't like how they look," you know, kind of thing. Some people look at them and see. I don't think like that. I I, I see the engineering. If they're on every single hillside, maybe I'd have an issue. So maybe that is the answer. Maybe I do deep down inside do find that they're not visually that appealing. But in any case, that's subjective. But it's a con. Um, and, uh, the other con, which is one that I didn't immediately think of is that wind over land may not be as reliable, uh, in some parts of the world. Yeah. So why that is makes sense, but we'll get to it in a minute. So that's the cons that I could think of Mm -hmm. any other cons you can 
that come to mind? No, those, I think you hit pretty much most of the big ones. Like here in the States, you know, as far as wind availability goes, you'll, mo- you'll mostly see them in plains areas. Yeah, that's true. Places that are large and flat. Yeah. You could watch your dog run away for three days. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting way of putting it all right cool all right so let's talk about offshore mm-hmm. because offshore is like uh offshore is all the rage in wind turbines at the moment and there's good reasons why so the pros are you have got a lot of real estate to choose from and by lots of real estate i think is it two-thirds of the planet's surface is covered in water something like that yeah something <laughs> something like that a very large percentage and uh, with with ice melting and so on and so forth, it's gonna uh, it's gonna be more. So We're getting more ocean every day. It's like yeah, <laughs> bring that ocean. Yeah. I guess whether you want to or not, it's gonna happen. It seems. So um, you got lots of real estate to choose from, and that that therefore means you can be a long way from any permanent neighbors. I mean, fair enough. There may be boats that go past every now and then if you're on a ship passing by, but other than that, no one's gonna see them and no one's gonna hear them. Yeah. So that's a big pro. Interesting fact, wind studies from different parts of the world Mm -hmm. have demonstrated consistently that you will get more consistent and stronger winds offshore than you will get from most onshore locations. In fact, many of the very best onshore locations, in fact, that are the best, um, they're already in use. Yeah. So it's like in many many of the onshore spots have already been taken, but offshore, not the case. Now there's the cons because mm-hmm. obviously, well, if this was better, then why didn't we just do this from the beginning? Well, obviously, um, if you want to fix pylons to the ocean floor, mm-hmm. there's only so deep you can go. So currently the deepest offshore wind farm that has a you know fixed pylons in the bedrock underwater um, is about 60 meters. That's about 200 feet. Right. Um, deep water, which is still, don't get me wrong, that's still pretty deep and mm-hmm. certainly deeper than I've ever swam. Um, but then, you know, I can't really swim very well despite the fact that I'm supposedly, okay, why everyone seems to think Australian, every Australian can swim. Um, I can sort of swim, but let's not test that. Um, okay. Going down 60 meters, definitely not done that and definitely don't want to do that. Um, I'm, I don't, I don't know. I, I think I'd freak out that deep. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, that's the deepest one that they have at the moment. And going deeper than that becomes a problem with supports, rigidity of the structure, currents, and so on and so forth. It gets difficult. Yeah. Um, so another con, um, just looking at um, at Europe as an example where I could get some good stats because, of course, off, offshore has become the most popular in Europe at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's spreading through other parts of the world, though. Um, 80% of the offshore high wind locations are in depths greater than 60 meters. So whatever ones that are out there at best will only ever capture 20% of what's able to be captured offshore right? in terms of wind energy. So there's a massive um, problem if you want to go out deeper. So offshore has a limit. All right. There's also some legality and some disputes over, and this is going to sound strange, but <clears throat> mining wind, mm-hmm. like capturing wind is probably a better way of saying it. Um, I over think mining wind is actually kind of a good term for it. I like it. Well, I guess. Eh, okay. Well, let's just, we'll, we'll go with that. I think, think listeners know what I mean. It's the, the fact is that you're harnessing, mining it, whatever. Um, but if you're doing that, X number of miles offshore, you're in international waters, right? 
You've also got sovereign borders and claims and people, you know, sometimes will say, well, let's build an island here and then we can say where our shoreline is now further out. Um, Dutch have been doing that for ages too, by the way, reclaiming ocean and saying, hey, yeah, guess what? <laughs> Another five miles out from the new line here. That's ours too. Yeah. So yeah, very clever, the Dutch, you know, they, they, uh, they're creeping up on the ocean. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I did a, we did a whole episode on that one anyway. Um, but yes, uh, so then, of course, when you're connecting that electricity to different countries' grids, if there's a sovereign border, uh, it could be an interesting challenge, let's just say, legally and politically. Yeah. So it's like, hang on, man, that's my wind. You can't have that. Yeah. Or I want a 30% split of the energy because that's my wind yeah. or something. I mean, I... Well, and we haven't even met. discussed the possibility that some hostile foreign power could come and just take the thing out. Hey, it's in international waters. Exactly right. Yeah. So there's... Yeah, true. And so there's the whole sabotage angle, pirates, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting little area, shall we say. Yeah. So, but that's that's a human problem, not a technical problem. So I'm not going to go any more about that, but, you know, it would be remiss for me not to mention something about it. Yeah. Let's just say you want to go into deeper water. So how would you do it? Mm-hmm. Obviously, floating is the answer because we've already had decades of experience in the oil and gas industry um, with deep water rigs like Ocean Ranger uh, and Deepwater Horizon. And it did occur to me that the two that I just gave examples for are ones that both sank I'm not getting at anything when I say that. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> they were really, really bad examples. Mm-hmm. But it, other than them, it works fine. Yeah. Anyway, um, and I did two episodes of Causality, by the way. There's an episode about Ocean Ranger and there's an episode about Deepwater Horizon. So if you haven't checked those out and you're not listening to Causality, you really should be. Um, but in any case, uh, check those out if you're interested. But bottom line is the technology has been around for 30 years, 40 years nearly. Um, it's well established and it can work. Um, so you just have something that floats. Uh, and it's essentially a semi-submersible. So you have these uh, essentially massive pontoons filled with ballast water and they keep the whole thing steady, but there's enough air in them in order to essentially keep it floating above uh, sea level. But it's surprisingly stable. If there's big swells, you would have to like you know, stop operations and so on. Uh, but generally speaking, unless it's the biggest of storms, these things can be incredibly stable. Like you wouldn't even think being on one of those things that um, that it was actually not anchored to the ground. Yeah. So then you have anchor rope, you have anchor chains and, and so on and so forth, but they're all, they're, they're loose, they're slack. And in, in the case of something like Deep Water Horizon, there wasn't that. There was um, essentially to have, uh, you know, small propellers underneath uh, and that uh, keep a GPS locked in position. Yeah. But in any case, the technology exists. So there's no reason why you can't put a wind turbine on it, except, of course, the added challenge of the torsion effect and turning moment of having something so tall above the water level. Because whilst it's true that the derrick, it goes quite high, um, the majority of the mass above an oil rig, uh, a deep water rig at least, um, is not in the derrick. Uh, when you're loading pipe and unloading pipe and all that sort of stuff, it's like, well this case the turbine and the blades and they're rotating are way above the water level so that you know that that creates a, an upside down pendulum in a sense mm-hmm. which is really not stable so you've got to be a bit smarter about the design so rather than going into too much of the complexities um so people have done it 
the, 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 there was a pilot plant built off the coast of Scotland mm-hmm. and that was built in 2018, 2019 and they called it the High Wind 5 pilot plant. It only makes 30 megawatts. I say only 30 megawatts. That, only. That's still pretty decent. Yeah. That's still pretty, that's that's a lot more than my solar panels. They, they, tap, they tap out at five kilowatts. So, you know, hey, 30 megawatts, that's pretty good. Um, but they did the cost comparison and they mm-hmm. know that it cost twice as much than if they'd build the same capacity onshore. But it proves it can work. Yeah. Um, and it does work. So anyway, um, having said all of that, you know, if a wind turbine sinks offshore, they're unmanned, so no one's probably going to get hurt. So I guess that's a plus probably. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully no fish uh, are hurt as it as it sinks. Anyway, um, and I think costs will come down over time. That much is a certainty. And ultimately, it's that 60% capacity factor that they really want. And we'll talk about capacity factor a little bit more. That'll make sense. But that's actually really exceptionally good. Okay. All right. So far, so good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's have a look about a look at the uh, some of the different popular types of turbines. And honestly, I'm not going to go into them all because you'd be stunned just how many different kinds of wind turbines are, that exist. So the large-scale turbines, they're dominated by the most popular, which is the tri-blade. Yeah. Uh, and they're essentially a tail finless. That is to say they have no tail fin. Mm-hmm. So the tail finless design and seems to hit the sweet spot um, for lowest cost per size, balancing the rotor, operating at scale. But that's large-scale turbines. If we talk about domestic turbines, and I know we aren't, but just to mention them, there's a weird split between three, four, and five-blade um, they generally have tail fins in their designs, yeah. Um, and that's and that's that's probably historically been the majority. Mm-hmm. But now the more the vertical, uh, and there's also the orb style that I talked about on that episode of um, on the episode of Pragmatic years ago. Um, and they rotate on the horizontal um, axis in a sense, in terms of how I think about it. Um, so, yeah, they rotate horizontal. <laughs> They rotate around horizontally yeah. for a vertical shaft. Like if you um, laid a bicycle opposed... down and spun the wheel. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah that. Um, and, and the advantages of those turbines is... Uh, I say the advantages, sorry. The design goal of those is to be quiet and to work in lower wind speeds with more turbulent air. Whereas with the large wind turbines, they're specifically put in locations where there is very minimal air turbulence... Yeah, and where there is just consistent a nice, wind. steady, constant flow. Nice, yes, and they don't pick the sites with lower wind speeds, so they don't need to optimize for lower wind speeds. So that means you can have a more efficient turbine that operates at higher wind speeds, which is one of the reasons they go for the bigger turbines. So, um, as I've said before, it's all about you know trade offs. Mm-hmm. You know, speed speed versus energy, and when I say speed, I mean like wind speed. So, right, the minimum the minimum wind speed to start rotating is one of the measures that they that they have for any wind turbine. So, for large turbines, that's about eight kilometers an hour, which is about two meters a second. I I sorry, I don't have what these are in knots, um, which I know some people like to talk in knots, but still, uh, there's also a cut in speed, mm-hmm. and the cut in speed is when the turbine just starts to actually generate power. Right. So for large large turbines, um, you're looking about at about twelve and a half kilometers an hour, which is three point five meters per second. Yeah. And they will then reach a maximum power generated for large turbines 
and that varies between 10 to 15 meters per second, which is about 36 to 54 kilometers per hour. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, like miles per hour, so, you know, like, um, so 35 miles per hour is 50 kilometers per hour, right. roughly. Yeah. Um, so that's a pretty yeah. good wind. <laughs> it's pretty decent. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, but these, of course, have been specifically put in areas where they will get those sorts of winds. So that's maximum power generated. But here's the thing. Storms are a thing, mm-hmm. you know, like hurricanes, typhoons, cyclones, whatever you want to call them. Um, the twister. you're really unlucky, a twister. That's right. Tornado. Uh, we got ourselves a tornado. Yeah. Unfortunately, therefore, you have to have a maximum speed, and they call that the, uh, the cutout speed. Mm-hmm. And that's when the turbine has to be stopped or braked or both, you know, like braked or the fins have to be put in um, uh, out of the wind. Right. Uh, and for most large turbines, they're cutting out at 90 kilometers an hour winds, which is very, yeah, it's basically that's, storms. Yeah, that's, they let them go. That's that's a pretty good high high level cutoff. It's higher than I would have expected. That's it. I mean, I think that you, you'll find that these are sort of average numbers based on wind turbines made in the last 10 years. I think, I think the truth is that it'd be based on the manufacturer's recommendation. I think some models might have a higher cutout or lower cutout speed. So these are just yeah. sort of like rough numbers. Lower, uh, so smaller domestic turbines will have a lower cut-in speed. Like they'll cut in uh, and start generating at only three meters a second. Yeah. So the difference between three meters a second and three and a half meters a second is not as is is, is not as trivial as you might think. Um, but then the cutout speed of um, you know like twenty-seven meters a second, mm-hmm. um, you know that's the smaller turbines, you know, they're optimized to make much less noise. So ultimately, um, they can also be more linear. So when you're going from low wind speed to high wind speed, like between the 8 to 14 meters a second, let's say, I looked at a couple of them and it's relatively linear profile. So as the speed inc- wind speed increases, your power linearly increases. Um, but, you know, having said that, you'll get like 750 watts yeah, from from some of these little turbines, like that's seven fifty watts. That's pretty impressive. Um, well, yeah, but you know, this is a domestic. Yeah. Um, and then five kilowatts is probably the biggest domestic model you'll get, and that's borderline on. That's really not going to be a quiet wind turbine, right? Yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, but larger turbines, on the other hand, uh, they the their power efficiency increases dramatically as your wind speed moves up. So. Uh, it's more of an exponential curve, and then it starts mm-hmm. to flatten. So it's, I think the 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 preferred term is an S curve. So it's like it's practically nothing, practically nothing. You reach your cut-in speed, and then it starts to ramp up, mm-hmm. and then it really ramps up, and then it flattens plateaus. off towards the top and peters out. Yeah, yeah exactly. It plateaus at the top. Exactly right. Um, so to just to give you a little bit of a comparative, the the turbines at Cooper's Gap, mm-hmm. um, there were two different kinds. Uh, one is 3.6 megawatts and the other is 3.8 megawatts. Mm-hmm. So each of those at optimum um, wind speed would be making 3.6 or 3.8 megawatts per turbine. Yeah. Which is a lot, obviously. Mm-hmm. All right. So the, the few little rules of thumb, um, larger blades will harness more energy, but they make more noise. They're harder to transport. They're harder to construct and they will take more wind speed before they cut in. Right. Smaller blades will take less speed to cut in, make less noise, and are limited in their maximum power output. So you need a lot more of them. You need a lot more of them to be viable at a scale, at large scale. Yeah. 
and I think that's kind of intuitive, right? Because you know, if you've got big blades, they're going to be bigger, they're going to be heavier. Mm-hmm. So the heavier they are, the more energy you need in order to start them. Right. But of course, you've also got more surface area, so you're going to get more of that, you know, aileron sort of effect. Um, um, going as the wind's going over the top of them, creating a negative pressure to create the force you need to turn it. But it's like, you know, the, it's not it's not an easy equation, but it's clearly larger blades yeah. will harness more energy, which is why they use them. So large scale, three, bay, three blade tail finless. So I was thinking, okay, well, why three blades? Because I genuinely didn't know this until I started digging into it. And it turns out that well, obviously they're the most popular because they're the best trade-off. But the trade-offs between the contact area with the wind and the diminishing returns and cost of adding a fourth or fifth blade. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, well, wouldn't you go one better and go with a two-blade unit? Mm-hmm. So it turns out that you can, by adding a third blade, you do get more energy from adding the third blade. Um, but beyond that, the efficiencies drop. So I'm not sure how much you know about the math behind three-phase power, three-phase electricity. Not a, not a whole lot. Well, that's okay. The, the, the idea behind it is it's, it's basically, um, it's the same kind of idea. So right now, if you have any three-phase power system, mm-hmm. each of the phases of electricity are out of step by um, 120 degrees so that they don't, um, they have minimal interference with each other. Right. So you can then essentially group them together and you can carry more power Mm-hmm. over the same power corridor or cable, depending on what we're talking about, yeah. um, than you could with a single phase. Yeah. I'm not talking about bundling conductors. I'm just talking about like three independent phases. But if you had all of them the same phase, then they would cause more interference and cross-coupling with each other. Okay. But by putting them out of phase, you minimize that and you create what they refer to as a balanced transmission line. So you've got... So each of them, therefore, cancels each other out in, in, in a manner of speaking. So okay. they, they, they're balanced... And and balanced loads in in the electrical sense is uh, okay. I'm going to talk about balanced and unbalanced loads. No, I'm not. But what I'm going to say is, they there were some proponents early on for adding a fourth phase mm-hmm. and a fifth phase because you could do the same kind of thing again. But they found that the extra costs involved in doing that mm-hmm. were not. It was not worthwhile because you needed extra insulators and extra conductors and so on. And um, essentially, the interaction between the phases was therefore not cost economical. So it turns out that it's a similar kind of argument with that third blade. Like it's worth adding a third. Yeah. It's at scale, at scale. That's the key point, at scale. Smaller turbines, you'll often see with four or five. So then the last thing comes down to balance. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to balance three blades than four, apparently. And I sort of thought through that and I'm like, I'm not entirely sure, but... I've read a few, uh, there's a few sites that talk about balances yeah. when it comes to, interestingly, um, you know, propellers. Balance in this perspective, we're talking about so that your rotation maintains a smooth circle, like balancing a tire, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. Because if you have one propeller or one, one you know, fin that is... Then it wobbles. Exactly. And that wobble creates a yep. vibration. The faster it rotates, the worse the vibration. Vibration means... Stress, um, breakage. Stress, stress means it breaks. Yep. So basically... You're trying to avoid that. Yeah. So there's an interesting site I found that talked about um, propeller balance. If you're interested in that, it's more meant for boating, but still. Um, so four-blade props are more 
in in the in in that boating industry are more popular because they're easier to make, even though they're less efficient. Um, uh, but rather than three blade, funnily enough, when it comes to wind, it's three blades. So yeah, no figure. Anyway, all right. Why no fin? That was the other thing that I has all had always wondered, and I suspected I knew, and it turns out I was my suspicion was correct. But it was always nice to get that validated by just doing my research. Um, and that is that at scale, a fin causes more turbulence. Mm. You're trying to avoid turbulence. Yeah. So the, 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 the action of the fin is to keep it pointing into the wind. Right. Well, guess what? You've got, well, this is modern technology. So you've got all sorts of different pressure sensors on this thing. So in fact, if you have pressure sensors and velocity sensors for the rotational rate and everything and the position of each of the blades, um, then you don't need to actually detect the direction, you can detect it using the sensors. You don't need a tail fin to mechanically point it in the breeze. Mm -hmm. So what they do is I'll add either a servo motor or a stepper motor or a hydraulic system uh, with a positioner and they'll computationally determine the correct direction based on feedback from the sensors on the turbine. Mm -hmm. And it works just as well as a tail fin with none of the downsides of a tail fin. The tail fin is just a drag, man. (laughs) (laughs) yes it is the blades themselves have also got motors in them Mm -hmm. on them (laughs) to change their angle of attack um i was there when they i right at the base i didn't realize that that's cool yeah i was actually at the base of one and i was listening to one of these things start Mm -hmm. and um and i and you'd see each of the you'd hear each of the blades go crank 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 slightly Mm-hmm. And um, then it would stop, and it would slowly start to rotate. And then you'd wait five minutes, and you hear crank, crank, crank again. And then it would uh, all the fan blades would turn to a different angle of attack. And that's pretty and, cool. Uh, and so, on. oh yeah. So they optimized the uh, the blade angles to get the optimum startup speeds and optimal power generation once it's rotating. Very cool. Um, and when they're parked probably goes without saying they keep them trailing as much as possible to prevent uh drag you know from the prevailing wind direction when when they when you've got too much wind or you don't while you're doing some kind of maintenance or whatever you're locking them and yeah stopping them it sound they are that's actually a little bit more complicated than you might think you know the whole thing but it's the technology itself has been around now for actually several decades the only thing that's different is that it's making them bigger so the basic concepts are much the same and in that respect, you could consider wind turbines at that scale to be a solved problem. All right. A few design considerations. Um, the height. I said before turbulence, right? Mm-hmm. So they talk about wind that's clean. And I don't think they mean like soot um, or I don't know, whatever else might be carried on the wind, microplastics. No, no, no. The cleanliness of the wind is just a measure of turbulence. Right. So the more turbulent the air, the less efficient the turbine's going to be. Simple enough. Um, hence they need to be a minimum height above the ground to avoid turbulence because turbulence at the ground air barrier where they join, where they, where they touch, um, all it takes is wind going over an object like a, like a tree, mm-hmm. a rock, obviously a mountain, you know, like any of those undulations that you're going to find. It's like that just creates air turbulence and that's bad. You don't want to be in that turbulence. Yeah. So generally, um, and and even over flat ground, like really completely flat desert, mm-hmm. you will still get turbulence at that boundary because of the skin effect from that air and the friction over the top of that ground. I mean, if that didn't happen, you wouldn't get like surface waves, for example, in the ocean, and you wouldn't get sand dunes with that ripple effect. 
So it's like you still get turbulence even if the ground is perfectly flat. It's just that's just physics. Yeah. So that's why um, when they put these um, wind turbines in, they're generally at least ten meters or thirty feet um, as a starting point off the ground, and that's the lowest point of the blade in its lowest vertical position. Yeah. If you know what I mean, not the pivot point of the turbine, the, the lowest point the blade reaches. All right. So far, so good. Mm-hmm. All right, getting through it. So I've talked a few times about different measurements that they've got. So um, it's worth mentioning just some of them quickly they use in the, in the business. Um, wind power density. So that's watts per... That's watts per... Watts... Oh, God. <laughs> that's watts per square meter of airspace. Mm-hmm. Um, so they use that as a way of trying to project and calculate how much wind power you can get for a certain uh, area. Yeah. Um, next is capacity factor. I've mentioned that a few times. So what the heck is capacity factor? It's really simple in a sense. It's the nameplate capacity. So let's say you put in a turbine like the ones at Cooper's Gap, 3.6 or 3.8 megawatts. So that's the maximum nameplate capacity that this thing can produce. It can produce 3.6 megawatts or 3.8, depending on which one we're talking about. Yeah. So the capacity factor, therefore, is the maximum rated nameplate capacity of that turbine averaged against the expected wind in the installation location. So I say expected wind. You could also argue actual wind once you've installed it. So it's one or the other. Right. And that's your capacity factor. So if you've got um, a 3 megawatt turbine and it runs with enough wind to generate enough power 30% 30% of the time to meet that in, in in total. Like if you would have able to run that turbine for 365 days of the year, let's say, at exactly generating 33 um, megawatts, then you'd have 100% capacity factor. But that's never going to happen because right. wind isn't it's constant. It's too variable. That's right. So the capacity factor is generally the factor that they use to determine whether or not it's a good or bad place and a design for the turbines is the right design for that place which is why I said earlier, offshore wind farms, some of the offshore sites can have capacity factors of 60%. And on land, 30% is considered good. So the attraction of going out offshore to get that high capacity factor, simply because the wind is more consistent and there's less turbulence. It's like, that is worth chasing. So the other things they do is they break wind down into classes because of of course they do. There's an IC standard to this too, because uh, of course there is. Um, you know, because <laughs> why wouldn't so, there be? Because <laughs> obviously, right? A class four is considered to be very low wind, and that's reference speed is thirty meters per second. Average maximum is six meters per second. So that doesn't sound like it sounds like oh, that's actually quite good. It's really not. The average max is the one you care about yeah. the most. An average maximum of only six meters a second is not that great. Um, so a class three, uh, it has an average max of seven and a half meters per second. That's with a reference of 37.5 meters per second. Um, class two is getting a little bit more impressive, an average max of 8.5 meters per second. So that's pretty solid, pretty consistent. And that's got a reference of 42.5 meters a second. And then finally, a class one, which is of course what you really, really want, high wind area, um, its reference is 50 meters a second. Average max is 10 meters per second. So if you're average, you're gusting at 10 meters a second. That is some seriously good 
wind, <laughs> which I just realized is an interesting expression. <laughs> anyway, so so generators, um, when you go and buy one of these turbines with a generator, um, it's often described by its wind class. So you'll say, well, this turbine is a, designed for a class three area or a class two area. So if you've got a class three turbine, it'll have a larger rotor to capture the same amount of energy um, uh, that you would otherwise need in a class two area because you have less wind, so you need a larger rotor. In a class two area, you don't to capture the same amount of, uh, of energy. Yeah. Um, this is a little bit more about um, the technical uh, on the electrical side, and then we'll talk about some of the uh, maintenance issues. Okay. Okay. So DC versus AC, you know, Westinghouse, Tesla, all that other good stuff, you know, whatever. Preferred generator types. Okay. So I thought about it. If I was putting up a um, a generator, what would I what would I put up? Now, obviously, I say obviously for the electrical engineers listening. Obviously, a permanent magnet synchronous generator that's going to be your best efficiency that you're going to get. But there's a reason that we don't have permanent magnets um, on large scale equipment electrically, is because having Permanent magnets at that size for multi-megawatt turbines and stuff, that's really expensive. And it just becomes problematic. Yeah, You're never, ever going to get that. So for larger ones, they are more commonly, uh, in fact, um, like well, 80% of them, um, will use external excitation of their rotor. So an externally exc- excited rotor is really not unusual. Like, for example, when I worked at the Stanley Power Station, we had 350 megawatt um, generators and they were all externally excited. Right. So it just means that you've got to pass power onto the rotor, um, onto the rotor uh, windings, sorry, the name escaped me, the rotor windings um, via slip rings or what have you. Yeah. So with tur- with wind turbines, what they have is they they prefer a doubly fed induction generator. I'm not going to go into describing what doubly fed means. Just trust me. Um, and there's links in the show notes if you really want to learn about what that means. But basically, it's not a permanent magnet. Yeah. Now, obviously, one of those things I actually well, I just wanted to mention one of the things that I find funny about external excitation is that you need power to make power, which just to my brain is just, just seems a bit funny in my mind for some reason. So, cause the idea is that, you know, when you have like at the coal fired power station, I'm power station. I worked at there for six months when I was still doing my degree long time ago, 25, 27 years ago. Wow. Time flies and you're having fun. Anyway, that's why um, they had, uh, so ba- base load plants typically will have a black start generator. Because in order to actually start the plant, you need electricity. So how are you going to do that? Well, you have a bunch of diesel generators out the front. Those diesel generators, you start them up just like a diesel engine. (laughs) And they provide electricity to then start the actual electrical plant, which is kind of, I always found that funny. I don't know why it's funny. You need power to make power. Same kind of thing with these. So they'll draw their excitation power from the grid. And then once the turbine's generating power, they don't need to anymore. I mean, they still might, but they don't need to. Yeah, they become self-sustaining, as it were. So they tap off some of the power that they then generate. Anyway, so either way you go with a PSMG or a DFIG, whichever generator doesn't really matter. You get AC. That's fine. Mm-hmm. AC is okay. So how do you bring that back to the grid? Is the real interesting question. 
Obviously, from a cable perspective, undersea cables have been around for a long time. So that's that's not surprising. You just you know dangle a cable down onto the floor of the ocean and pops back up and it's all good. And then you go from an AC to DC conversion. And you might think, well, okay, why would you do an AC to DC conversion? The interesting thing is, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. And this gets back to your gearbox point. Mm-hmm. You don't know how fast that turbine is going to be generating. Yeah. You're spinning. It's going to spin at the speed it's going to spin at. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can control it up to a point, but you really can't be that precise. It depends on the wind. So what happens when your grid is 50 hertz or 60 hertz AC and your wind turbines are generating power at 7 hertz? You know, so you can put in like multi-pole machines. You can put in, you know, there's a whole bunch of different things you can do and gearboxes to try and gear that up, gear that down and so on and so forth. Yeah. But they don't bother, generally speaking. What they'll do is they'll change it to DC and then if they go back to AC again, they'll then be able to essentially convert it back to AC and reconstruct it at 50 hertz. And Power Electronics makes that, well, these days at scale, Mm -hmm. makes that quite possible. So, like, 20 years ago, no way. Yeah. But these days, you know, having DC, high-voltage DC and, you know, like, power electronics doing all this stuff, it it absolutely works. It's really cool. So, in any case, and um, the other thing, of course, you can't get away from beyond the whole AC to DC thing. Sometimes they do DC transmission because it's got less loss. And obviously, if you're offshore, you're going to be further away from the electrical grid. So the further you go, the more power you're going to lose with longer cables, longer power drop. But, you know, this is not going to be a massive problem until you're going hundreds of miles out to sea, which we're not there yet, but, you know, yeah. eventually probably. All right. That's the electrical part. Mm-hmm. So finally, 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 we're going to talk a little bit about maintenance and then I'll just recap Cooper's Gap and that's it. Okay. So, okay. Maintenance. The other thing I love about solar panels is they just sit there and work. I mean, fair enough, you got to like, you know, give them a scrub and clean every now and then to pick up that last five or six percent of efficiency you're losing with dirt and grit forming on them. Yeah. Bit of, you know, more or less. But mm-hmm. they just sit there, they make power. And you're like, imagine that. Thanks. Thanks, guys. That's like really <laughs> solid. That's a solid effort, you know? Solar panels, you're my friend. Until, of course, it's overcast. Until, of course, you live in a climate where it's like six months of the year, you don't get very much sunlight. Mm-hmm. Like in Calgary, solar panels, really, yeah. in the wintertime, aren't going to help much. They're going to look awfully pretty. Well, maybe they won't, but they're going to look the way they look. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. All right. So, But wind turbines, they have moving parts. So they're going to have more problems. But the thing that's interesting and thing that I found interesting when I was digging into this is because I thought it was going to be a bigger problem than it was. So clearly they're going to require more maintenance in solar panels, but how much more? Because they're not going to degrade like solar will because solar over time, like after 15 years, you're going to lose 20% of your capacity just through you know degradation and breakdown of the silicon junctions. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing you can do about that. It. It's just, just the way it is. Um, so there's always going to be ongoing costs as well. Let's just take those off the table. So land rental payments to landowners and and so on and so forth. Offshore, obviously, is probably less of a problem. But the biggest piece of you know of maintaining a wind turbine um, is going to be you know moving parts that fail. Yeah. So the way they do it is they say um, the, ter- the the wind farming industry um, talk about incidents per ten machine years or a machine decade, if you right. like. 
So all the numbers below are in that metric. So they had, I found a great website that broke it all down and said, this is our experience to date of wind turbines over the last 25 years. Yeah. So electrics, 5.51 incidents per machine decade. Mm-hmm. Control units, 3.71. Anything sensor related, whether that's dirty sensors, broken sensors, whatever, mm-hmm. 2.8. Hydraulics just behind a 2.7. The yaw system, 2.5 mm-hmm. and the brakes two yeah then below that you're at 1.3 or below you've got gearbox then generator structure and the drivetrain yeah and those are each 1.3 or less for each honestly those numbers are lower than what i would have expected yeah same i was very pleasantly surprised yeah it's just by the nature of what these things were i would have been i would have thought they were you know, subjected to constant stress and I would expect the failure rates to be much higher. Yeah, same. I, absolutely. I, that's exactly what I thought I'd find. It was not true. So the interesting thing is the causes of damage are things like corrosion, debris, mm-hmm. clogging, you know, sensors and components, which you'd expect accumulation of material on the blades, which could lead to imbalance, which in turn leads to vibration, mm-hmm. which in turn leads to gearbox problems. But that's not high on their list of failures, which is interesting. Um. So they found that if you keep a close eye on your measurements, mm-hmm. like vibration, particularly vibration, you can see problems forming long before because they're very consistent. That all they will do is spin around a circle, so they really don't do a hell of a lot. Right. Um, and if you have a good preventative maintenance program, yep. then you can really minimize that downtime. Yeah. You can just you know exactly what you need. You get in before it breaks. You get you, you have the parts. Every so often, you take one turbine down, do a good PM on it, keep the rest of the field running, and then they don't all break down at the same time. Exactly. And that is turning out to be the winning strategy with these things. Yeah. And the funny thing is that most of the wind turbines are designed, have a design life of 20 years. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the turbines built in the early noughts are still running today, and they're running just fine. You know? That's awesome. I know. So, I mean, it could be 20 to 30 years with good maintenance. It could be like Maybe 40 more. to 50 yeah. years. It, we just don't know. So, at this point in time, these huge turbines that are being, being built today, because all the ones in the early noughts, they were, you know, around too much more than a megawatt, you know. Um, three megawatts, four, five megawatt turbines are becoming commonplace. Mm-hmm. But this is new, right? These are huge. So, that we have no data to support how long they're going to run at scale, it may turn out that they're even more reliable. I don't know. No one does. So it's interesting because you can't really accelerate a life test something like a wind turbine. Yeah. Not really. So what are you going to do? Put in a wind tunnel? Wouldn't fit in a wind tunnel for one thing, even if you could do that. It's like, hmm. Anyway. So... I was pleasantly surprised by that. Now, that is not to say that they're still not more expensive to maintain than solar panels. Of course they are, but just not as bad as I thought they'd be. And that's kind of a big deal if they're lasting 20 to 30 years, maybe 40 years, because a lot of people say, oh, these things, you know, we're going to have to start pulling them down and recycling them. Well, apparently, no, we're not. Not for a while yet. So that was interesting. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, a little bit more about Cooper's Gap just specifically. Um, as I mentioned, I did a... It's about a three and a half minute long episode, so it's actually the shortest one. So, again, if you haven't checked it out, make sure you check it out. 
Um, uh, it took about two years to build it mm-hmm. from start to finish, and it was the biggest wind farm in Australia for about six months, and then it wasn't anymore. Oh, that didn't last. They built. <laughs> no, I know, right? Um, total capacity: four hundred and fifty-three megawatts for the entire farm. Um, now, as impressive as that sounds, that pales into insignificance, really, when you compare it to the largest offshore wind farm in Hornsea. That's Project One um, in the UK, one point two one eight gigawatts. So that's nearly what is that? Three times four. Hang on, four three. Yeah, three times the size. Yeah, that's a um, lot of power. And that's offshore. The largest group or area, if you prefer, because it's so huge, calling it a single farm is unfair. They call it a group of farms. It's a co-op. Is uh, <laughs> it's a co-op of farms. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Let's all, let's all pull our wind resources together as a co-op. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, is, uh, it's in China, and it's the Gansu Wind Farms, and they combined generate eight gigawatts and they're still putting in more turbines. Eight gigawatts of wind power. Yeah. That's insane. Now, I thought to myself, you know what? This isn't... Cooper's Gap wasn't the first wind farm I actually saw. The first one I saw was actually when I was in America. Remember in 2019, I came over to Houston. I did a drive down to Corpus Christi for a day trip. Right. And um, that was the day that I, I eventually headed north to Austin. Um, anyway, no, that was a different day. It doesn't matter. The point is, um, on my trip where I went to Houston, Corpus Christi, and Austin. Yes. Uh, in Texas. And I drove past, I think it's pronounced um, Paperlote Creek. I'm not sure. Wind Farm. Mm-hmm. And that thing, I thought that was huge. Um, the nameplate capacity um, was 380 megawatts. So it wasn't as big mm-hmm. as Cooper's Gap in terms of capacity, but it had more turbines because the turbines were smaller because it was built earlier. So it had smaller turbines, so it had more of them. So it looked visually more impressive. So, um, But that was the first one I saw. There's a picture in the show notes, a picture in the chapter art you'll see now. Yeah. Those are my two wind farms that I've seen. Oh, yay. And and honestly, the one at um, Cooper's Gap was more impressive, more for the fact that I could stand really close to the base of one of them, which was quite, yeah, scary. But anyway. It's pretty impressive. Or inspiring. Yeah. Very That's, impressive. Yep. So what's the future? Thinking about it, mm-hmm. I think um, one of the interesting concept plans that I came across was for an array of smaller turbines stacked in a structure so like multiple turbines across, then multiple rows of them stacked on top of each other into a massive grid. Um, and that's being developed. Um, trying, they're trying to commercialize it. It's being designed by a company called Wind Catching Systems, which is an apt name since that's what they do Yeah. Um, from Norway. And they claim that their wind catcher design would be five times more efficient for the same physical area as a conventional massive pylon wind turbine. We'll see. Jury's out on that. But, you know, um, there's also the ongoing debate over vertical axis versus horizontal access for efficiency versus cost. Mm-hmm. So I do think that we're going to start seeing more large scale vertical axis turbines, which will be interesting. Um, and there's absolutely no doubt in my mind, none, that land-based turbines are going to become maxed out in most, or at least all the economically 
viable, environmentally viable locations will be tapped out yeah. very soon if they aren't already. There's just only so much usable land for that. Exactly. And then offshore will just become the future. Um, and like floating will become standardized mm-hmm. and more cost effective and they'll provide more consistent power supply through the day and night, which obviously is another thing solar sucks at yeah. nighttime. Doesn't really do well with moonlight, but mm. oh well. Um, and having said that, I did, of course, think of those countries that are landlocked. Yeah. So it's no good saying to like Kazakhstan, maybe. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe that's a bad example. I guess they've, I'm just thinking how close Kazakhstan is. Actually, there is a, a border that goes on to uh, not an ocean, but still. Uh, never mind. Bad example. But there are. <laughs> so, yeah, landlocked countries will not be able to get the direct benefit from offshore, obviously. Um, so they'll have to stick with onshore and solar or something else. Mm-hmm. The truth is that no one solution will fit all of your use cases. It just does not, just not possible. So that's it. What do you think? Pretty cool. Going to put up a wind turbine in your backyard now? Um, I don't know if I really have enough space for that, but <laughs> it would be cool. <laughs> it would be cool. I've yeah, actually considered I... the solar panels on the roof. Okay. Well, I've got. There's actually a, a pretty big initiative in Kentucky right now. I think I think people are actually getting paid to have them installed on the roof. Yeah, we had a, a solar rebate scheme, mm-hmm. and it, it sort of comes and goes and ebbs and flows. They come and they go, and sometimes they're better than others. Yeah. So we got in at the tail end. We still had some rebate, not the best, but better than nothing. And uh, it subsidized some of it, but our solar panels are now getting on a bit, and they're losing efficiency. Yeah. Um, they were cheap panels too, so they tend to degrade quicker yeah. than the decent panels. Yeah. So at some point in the next three three or four years, we'll probably just rip them up and... Yeah. Well, even at the best, those that, that technology is still not terribly efficient. Uh, solar panels? Yeah, from what I understand. Yeah, true. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. No, and, and I covered that a lot in the, uh, in the battery problem episode. Yeah. The highest efficiency solar panel um, that was only ever in the lab, never in real production, was 53% efficient which is exceptionally good, but they couldn't figure out how to mass manufacture it. Right. Yeah. It'll be really nice when they can finally get over that hurdle and mm. we can have some nice high-efficiency solar panels because we have plenty of nice green sunlight. Yeah, I think what you'll find is it'll just be the cost per square meter problem. So they'll say, well, yeah. the high, ultra, ultra high-efficiency panels are extremely ultra-expensive, so we'll put them on things that don't have much surface area, whereas a household roof... Well, there's plenty of surface area, so we'll put cheaper panels on there. They're not as efficient, but they're a hell of a lot cheaper. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's it's going to be an interesting progression. It's a balance. Space. Another topic for another episode. Yeah. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if you want to talk more about this, you can reach me on the Fediverse at Chigi at engineered.space, on Twitter at Ch- John Chigi, all one word, or the network at engineered underscore net. I'd personally like to thank ManyTrix for sponsoring the Engineered Network. If you're looking for some Mac software that can do many tricks, remember to specifically visit this URL, manytricksalloneword.com slash pragmatic for more information about their amazingly useful apps. If you're enjoying Pragmatic and want to support the show, you can by supporting our sponsor or by becoming a premium supporter. We're edging closer to our monthly goal to go advertising free across the network, but we can only do that with your help. You can find details at engineer.network slash pragmatic about how you can help this show to continue to be made. A big thank you to all of our supporters. A special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, John Whitlow, Kevin Kosh, Shane O'Neill, Oliver Steele, Leslie Law Chan, Hafthor, Jared, Bill, Joel Ma, and Katharina Will. 
and an extra special thank you to both of our gold producers, Stephen Bridal and our gold producer, known only as R. Pragmatic is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you'll have episode locations, enhanced chapters, and real-time subtitles on selected episodes. And you can also stream Satoshis and Boost with a message if you like. There's details on how, along with the Boostergram leaderboard on our website. Pragmatic Electric has recently launched as a video edition of this podcast, as we talked about on this very episode. You can watch it in Podfriend, Curiocaster, the Apple Podcasts app, Downcast, or if you're into YouTube, it's there too. Make sure you check it out today. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with Vic, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, mate? Probably the e- easiest place to find me is on the Twitters is at Vic Hudson one And I'm pretty much on, if I'm on a social, it's probably going to be Vic Hudson one as well. All right. No worries. Well, the first time I, I, I met you, I said, hey, is that Vic Hudson one Yeah. And you're like, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh, good. All right. Very fantastic. All right. Thanks for that. And um, a special thank you to all of our supporters and a big thank you to everyone for listening and as always uh, thanks for coming on the show Vic always a pleasure yeah thank you for having me it's always fun I really do want a wind turbine. Yeah. But yeah. I just I just can't get clean enough air. How, how, the air's how, too dirty. How would the fam feel about that in the backyard? Well, if I can get one that goes whoop 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 instead of like a strangled jet engine, maybe. But uh, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> yeah. You're like whoop. Whoop. Mm-hmm. Whoop. What's that noise? Uh that's the sound of energy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, the solar panels aren't making that noise. Are we getting energy out of them too? It's like, I don't know. You have to ask your mother. I'm an electrical engineer. I don't know. <laughs>